What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan? You and us. Did you do that? Quad nomen mihi est. Bonjour. Quad nomen mihi est. La plume de ma tante. How long are you planning to stay in Reagan? Until she rots and lies stinking in the earth. What's that? Holy water. You keep it away. Listeners, as the clock strikes midnight and we enter October, welcome to Season of the Horathon, our third annual Halloween event, which has become tradition every October here on the Film Effect Podcast, giving you full effect deep dives for the Film Effect Archive. Core, you excited for this year's celebration of all things horror and film? I only have one thing to respond to that. Uh, 30 more days till Halloween here at the Film Effect Podcast. Cue the music. Good, because kicking off this year's Horathon is a film that's celebrating its 50th anniversary. One from the maestro himself, Mr. William Freakin, who we just discussed on the podcast after he sadly passed away this past summer. And while I'm not much for these kind of horror films about possessions and such, this movie's definitely an exception. If horror was a sonnet, this film would be its poet. Folks, I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist.
somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! One hope, the only hope, the exorcist. The exorcist follows the demonic possession of a young girl and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism by two Catholic priests. Well, Cor, like I said, The Exorcist is a mainstay in horror, a total powerhouse film that's held a high regard, and rightfully so. I have a funny little story about this movie when we get to our first-time viewings, but I bring it up now because, and once you hear the story, it'll make more sense. It just shows how good the film really is, and when you look back at theater reactions from its initial premiere, along with all the stories that I'm pretty sure everyone's heard from their parents or elders about seeing it for the first time, you have an understanding for it because you get it yourself. Linda Blair is so goddamn frightening with all the sinister Dick Smith makeup on her. Her performance is so memorable for all the wrong reasons, but still, it's always going to be iconic. And... Then on top of it all, you add Mike Oldfield's tubular bells to the mix, and this is the kind of stuff monsters and demons dream of. Not a lot of horror is genuinely scary. The Exorcist is genuinely scary. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, cannot wait to talk about it. Let's talk about first time viewings. Oh my goodness, I remember the first time I saw that picture. I thought it was just wonderful. Uh, for me it was a video rental. I remember it very well. Summer of 97, and my buddy Nick Nemphos, we rented this in Scream. It was my first time seeing both films, but Nick had already seen them for himself and even spoiled various scenes from both movies. Thanks, buddy, especially when you proceeded to tell me about Billy and Stu being the Ghostface killers. But when I first saw this movie, The Exorcist, talking about that, not Scream, I, I didn't get it. I did not get this film. I, I, I think him and I spent more time laughing at it and, and just quoting it for all the wrong reasons. You know, it was just a movie that I just didn't understand it. I mean, I guess seeing it in the middle of summer and like the middle of the afternoon, broad daylight doesn't really help the thing. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't help its case of it being scary. But it took a long time for me to revisit it. And when I say a long time, I'm talking like 20 years. You know, I, I think I first watched this a few years ago. I gave it a true genuine watch again and that's when the love the admiration came out of me you know and i got it back then um 
or just recently, like when I first saw it, like I said, like I, I just did not get this movie one bit and spent many years just mocking it and just questioning people's, you know, taste and horror. But I don't know. That was just the young, dumb juvenile of me, I guess. Uh, how about you, though? When was your first time seeing this? Uh, it was a rental as well. So this was a movie I didn't see till later um, just because it was always one of those that my parents were both like see? frightened of. Yeah. Yeah, my mom it, too. You know, my parents always cited it as one of the scariest movies. So it was one of those where, like, I was allowed to watch horror movies, but I kind of wasn't allowed to watch The Exorcist when I was smaller. I kind of had to wait. So I would say I was probably about 13, 14. First time I saw it, it was a rental. Uh, you know, I watched it at night. I watched it by myself, and I mm-hmm. I remember it freaked the hell out of me. I was like, yeah, I, I can see why people say this is extremely scary uh i you know i think it's partially the way the movie's done also the time it came out you know in the early 70s there really weren't films like this you know so it's a slow it, burn yeah it's a slow burn it's I, I would say the movie's almost like a procedural like medical crime type movie almost until the finale yeah. like uh, yeah uh, the, kind of the way it's laid out so it just feels very real and i can see why uh, people be frightened, you know, it, and, you know, factor into the uh, point that people were much more religious as a whole back in the early 70s. Uh, you know, I, I think that just plays into it as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I remember renting it, taking it home, watching it and totally understanding. I I always uh, thought this movie was great. Uh, you know, it's just one of those that it gets better each time I watch it. it you know, it, it's mm-hmm. not one of my favorites. Yeah. I'm I'm not huge on the Exorcist movies in general but uh it's one that's definitely the series has definitely grown on me as time has gone on um and as we'll get to in the uh top five yeah that's when i was going to talk about that myself so uh before we get to that though let's talk numbers in the form of box office receipts get receipts so the film came out on december 26 1973 from warner brothers what a weird release date it had been scheduled for an earlier release but that was postponed due to post-production delays um Freakin was angry about this, believing that it hurt the film commercially. He wanted the film released before or on the holiday itself of Christmas. It has been speculated that Warners wanted to avoid any controversy that might have come from releasing a film about demonic possession before a major religious holiday. Friedkin supposedly had seen what Paramount had done to make The Godfather a a runaway success after its own troubled production. He wanted Warner Brothers to to follow suit and release it in a more favorable release date, uh, like March. Like the Godfather came out. So the post-holiday release served to help the Exorcist sell tickets, actually, as most moviegoers had time off. It was the highest grossing Christmas movie release after 1997's Titanic and is still in second place. The Exorcist's first run lasted 105 weeks, or just over two years. Keep in mind, folks, this was back when movies didn't get wide releases the way they do today. This is back when movies acted as like a traveling tour. Like, like, a, like a concert tour. It went from city to city or region by region. And hence, in this case, it took a little bit more than two years for it to complete its circuit. So it didn't come out like one time across the entire nation. Like that never happened until a couple years later with Jaws. So keep that in mind when I say this. Um, in 79, the film was re-released again, this time in 70 millimeter with its original 175 aspect ratio expanded to 220 a longer cut the version you've never seen later re-released as extended director's cut was released theatrically in 2000 with additions and changes 
The original release grossed $193 million worldwide, while the 2000 re-release grossed over $112 million worldwide. Combined with all the film's various re-releases, it has grossed $428.2 million against a $12 million budget. Uh, total gross, like I said, um, no, just, just, just talked about that. So let's dive into it now. Let's do our pre-dive top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation. And Ruling obviously, our top five favorite exorcism films. Now, keep in mind, for me, I'm not high on this subgenre. Still not. So, it's kind of slim pickings for me. There's there's very few that I've seen. And, and in fact, maybe one or two of these titles might have listeners like, are you sure that's exorcism related? Uh, that being said, no honorable mentions. Number five, diving right into it, Poltergeist. Uh, I feel like Poltergeist is an exorcism throw and throw i mean you have um uh what's her name zelda rubenstein's character coming in and she's literally her and her team are performing an exorcism on the entire house you know so that's how i fit that film into this category but i like portuguese that's kind of another one that grew on me after a while when i saw it at a young age i just didn't care for it and then the more i watched it growing up as i got older the more i have an appreciation for it but um yeah, I, I I definitely like it, and that's it's it's kind of funny too because I like all the all 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 three of the movies. Even the third one has a special place in my heart. But yeah, that's where I'm at. Number five, Poltergeist. How about you, Corey? Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I don't. Uh, I didn't really think of Poltergeist to put on my list, but I like the movie. That clown has always gotten me. <laughs> I remember seeing it at a very young age, and that clown yeah. freaked me the hell out. Um, but yeah, I, I'm the same with you. I'm not a big fan of exorcism movies. And then uh, for anybody that was around in the early 2000s, there was this huge resurgence of them. And most of them were just god awful. I mean, just really bad. Like, oh, man, eye rollingly bad. So the last exorcism and all that stuff, the possession. Yeah, there there was quite a few bad ones, something like that. Yeah, there was quite a few bad ones. But um, anyway, uh, I, I do have one honorable mention. Um, and that's when I'm not going to say it's a perfect film, but you know, it doesn't have good reviews, but I enjoyed it. And that is deliver us from evil. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was actually a pretty solid film. Um, starring Eric Bana, Edgar Ramirez. It's kind of like, yeah, Joel McHale's in there as, um, Eric Bana's partner. Yep. You know, it, it's a, it's a solid movie. It's a, like a police drama mixed in with an exorcism movie. Um, you know, the director, Scott Derrickson, hugely uh, talented. I mean, this isn't one of his best movies, but, uh, you know, some of his later work, I mean, it's just been great. So, uh, you know, it's a good movie. It's got some good style to it. Um, it's got a good couple good scares. So I just wanted to bring that up. It's a more recent one, and I actually enjoy it. It didn't get good reviews, but I I thought it was pretty good with the cast and uh, the directing. It delivers for me, but I think it's worth a watch. It's definitely a step above a lot of those early to mid-aught um, exorcism movies, for sure. 
Um, so my number five, interestingly enough, is one you just mentioned, and uh, that's The Last Exorcism. Uh, I actually enjoyed that movie quite a bit. I've I think it's highly it. underrated. So it's one of those odds um, exorcism movies that I just mentioned, but it's actually pretty well done. It's a found footage movie, which that right there might make a lot of people's eyes roll, but it's actually really well done. I like the whole premise. The premise is basically... There's this guy who travels around, does exorcisms, but he does fake exorcisms. Like he's just a sham man that goes in, uh, makes a big show of it, documents everything. Uh, So he comes into this town and obviously things aren't exactly as they seem. Uh, So it's a movie that has a couple good tricks up its sleeve. It has uh, some really solid uh, scares in there. And the physical acting, I don't know the actress's name um, offhand from the movie because I've only seen it, I think, twice. But... It had really solid, like, uh, physical, like, stuff with the possession. I, I remember, you know, I, I was just shaking my head the whole time. But um, it was actually really good. Patrick Fabian as Cotton in there, really well done. I, I really liked him in the lead. Um, he Most people might know him as Howard from uh, Better Call Saul. But uh, he does a really solid job in the lead in that movie. Uh, I think it's worth a look. I think if you're going to watch any of those early 2000 Exorcism movies, watch The Last Exorcism. Definitely worth a watch, in my opinion. Hit my number five. All right. Uh, doubling back when Scott Derrickson, I also wanted to mention um, his writing partner, C. Robert Cargill, who's also a co-host of one of the podcasts I listen to, Junk Food Cinema. Shout out. Um, although, funny enough, he didn't write that one with, with Scott. He, they both did Sinister together. They did Black Phone. They're doing another film coming out that they're being secretive about. But he didn't do... Because I think there was a studio gig. Uh, the Deliverance from Evil. It definitely was a studio movie, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think I, I think he replaced somebody and that's what happened with that. So, but anyway. Um, number four for me is The Witch. This might be another controversial one uh, to some. Um, but I just feel it's definitely an exorcism movie like um maybe not definitely i might be kind of cheating with this entry but i really like i really like the witch and maybe i just want to include it in this list somehow maybe because it kind of feels like an exorcism-esque film maybe that's where i was going at when i was thinking of my list so yeah i'm still keeping it on there so fuck you <laughs> number four for me is the witch <laughs> I, you know, I don't blame you on that one. I, I can totally see, uh, I can totally see that, that one crossed my mind as well. I, I didn't put it on my list, but, um, you know, I, I considered it. So yeah. mine, my, my number four might be a stretch too. Um, and that's the Conjuring series. Um, you know, many would argue the Conjuring, uh, especially the first two are Haunted House ghost movies. Um, which I can't really disagree with, but it also has the element of possession in there. I mean, the whole point of the ghost or the supernatural being in the Conjuring movies is to possess somebody, possess one of the characters. So um, I'm going to put that in Ed and Lorraine or kind of like the de facto, um, you know, exorcist in there. So uh, I'm going to put the Conjuring. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I love what James Wan did um, in the first two, especially the third one was kind of a letdown. But uh, I know he didn't direct that one. But uh, the first two Conjurings just hold a special place in my heart. I was there opening weekend, pack theater, and it's just so well done. Just from the sound design to the uh, acting. I mean, a star-studded cast. I mean, Patrick Wilson, Vera Farmiga, 
fantastic in the leads in that. And, um, you know, while I'm not a big fan of the expanded Codring universe, like the Nun and <laughs> La Llorona, all that other bullshit, that's not really good. But anything Juan did <laughs> at the beginning is good. The first two Conjuring, the second one with the Crooked Man. Oh, man, that, that freaked me out, too. I remember uh, seeing that for the first time. Uh, very well done. The first two, just really scary movies. I, I you know, I think they slot well enough in uh, with the Exorcist uh, type movies, even though they might not be your stereotypical, but uh, extremely well done. So I wanted to put that in at number four. Funny enough, number three is The Conjuring. I'm going to call attention to that film. Definitely an exorcism film, especially the, the third act of that movie with uh, the Lily Taylor character. Um, the Conjuring just really freaked the hell out of me. It freaked me out. It 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 genuinely left me like feeling uneasy after I saw it. I remember going back ten years, but still, I think that was the last genuinely scary movie that I actually saw that at least like made me feel uneasy after I came out of it. Granted, um, I've never seen the second one, but I I, I saw the third one only because it was you know that came out the year that hbo max got all the movies first run and that's how i watched it you know christ i watched it in bed the morning that it came out but um yeah maybe i should there's no particular reason why i've never seen the conjuring 2 i'm surprised Um, honestly yeah as much as i like the first one um it's not a huge step down honestly from the first one maybe it's just the fact that i'm just not big on sequels like that and i don't know i'll check it out though um so yeah number three for me is the conjuring yeah, solid pick. Great minds think alike. There you go. Um, so my number three, you know, I this movie is has to go down as one of the most surprising movies I have ever watched in my life, um, and that is uh, Ouija Two: Origin of Evil. Um, so for anybody who doesn't what? know, the first, hey man, I'm telling you, no, I'm it's just a solid movie. Genuinely left me shocked. Like I'm, I'm surprised you, you that, that that's. Okay, so Ouija 1 was just a soulless studio movie trying to cash in on the Ouija board. Everybody knows the Ouija board. You put your hands down, hear a message from supernatural places. Uh, The the first movie is complete garbage. Don't watch it. Just ignore it. You don't need to see it to watch the second one because it's a prequel. And uh, watch Orgy. Orgy? (laughs) Watch Orgy, folks. Watch Orgy or listen to him. Good man, by the way. Um, they used but, to be. Uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil, um, made by just a master filmmaker, in my opinion. Mike Flanagan. I am a fanagan of Flanagan. Anything <laughs> that man does is is a winner in my book. I mean, Oculus, one of the most underrated Fucking horror movies. Fucking love Oculus. It has come out recently. Uh, Midnight Mass, The Haunting of um, Hill House. Everything Flanagan does is top-notch. Uh, Dr. Obviously, Sleep. Dr. Sleep. Yep. One of the best uh, like legacy sequels for a horror movie that's ever come out. Absolutely, the man the man knows his way around horror. He came in, did the sequel, solid movie. Honestly, it is really good. It is surprised. Yeah. surprised the hell out of me. It, I, it's about possession of a uh, single mother and a young girl. Uh, just watch it. it. It is really good. Don't let it throw you off. It's not another just soulless studio movie. Flanagan puts a lot of love and care into everything he does, and the man. It, to me is an icon in the genre i mean if you had if i had to pick somebody like as far as like recent like in horror i mean he would be at the top of my list like playing it the man can do no wrong so i uh, ouija definitely makes it to my number three just skip the first one all right um 
Right, number two. Okay, yeah. so yeah. <clears throat> number two and number one, funny enough, are like neck and neck. But I, I, they're, they're, I, I, I'm not confused about their positions. They're in the right place. Number two is number two. Number one is number one. But they're really close is what I'm getting at. That said, number two, The Exorcist 3. I love The Exorcist 3. This is where we can talk about the franchise a little bit, I guess, because, you know, if Justin were on here, he'd be the defender of part two. Corey <laughs> and I are on touch that one with a 20-foot pole. Hell That's man. all Justin. Number three, I love part three. Um, I, I, I'm not really... The Legion cut, it's really rough around the edges, first off, the quality, but... You know, what they put out Morgan Creek back in 90, I'm fine with. I think it, it has the the performances alone. Like, Brad Dorff's performance is, like, reason enough to, to seek this movie out. It's not hard to find. I mean, Scream Factory yeah. has it. Um, just put it out in 4K this past summer. But the, the, the performances, the... I mean, George, George, George P. Scott. George C. Scott, I mean, is just... He's, he's oh, he something owns else. the film. He does. And, the, of course, everyone's going to talk about the jump scare. But let me tell you something. I knew of a jump scare going into this film for the first time several years back. That's... It got me. It's, it's a genuine... If you, don't know this, if you don't know the scene we're talking about, if you've been under a rock for the last 30 years, there's a particular scene... It, it's effective, even holds up to this day. It's still to this day effective. Is what I'm getting at. Um, I'm I'm not as big on the, the. I think what makes this number two and not number one. What separates this from a number one pick is the the, the, the third act. I do feel the third act is, and even the the, the the people behind the scenes and all like admitted that the third act was pretty much the studio saying, "Hey, this is called The Exorcist. It needs an exorcism." So they kind of just threw in this half-ass exorcism if you want to call it that in the third act and it's kind of like forced and doesn't really fit with the rest of the film but hey it's there and uh, you know um <laughs> Brad what can I say Brad Dorf just fucking owns that movie him and him and uh, Scott are both like they go neck and neck with their performances so and that's just like this movie it's, it's, it's just like the film we're going to talk about today it's it's all about the performances so it's it's it's, it's fitting so that's my number two, though, is uh, The Exorcist Three. Yeah, it it's tough for me too. I I debated on the top two. I think I think that for a lot of horror fans, the, the top two is pretty set in stone. I, I don't know. That's just the sentiment I get. Like you know, whether you have one at number one or the other, I, I think a lot of people would put these two films at the top. So uh, yeah. my number two is The Exorcist Three as well. Uh, it's one I struggle with because if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, it wouldn't even have been close. Since you know, we're on the it, same page, I think we can just be upfront. Number one for both of us is obviously yeah. the actress says we don't have to tiptoe around it. It's no big right. secret. Right. And, you know, I 10 years ago wouldn't even been close. I just like Exorcist 1 all the way. The third one's good, but distant. And every time I watch the movie, I, I own the Screen Factory Blu-ray. And, you know, every once in a while when I pop it in, it just gets better. Yeah. Honestly, it's just it's a movie that was underappreciated. Uh, William Peter Blatty came back. I, I know he didn't like certain things that happened with the original. So he comes into the director chair and he, I mean, he does a great job. I, I think the movie's fantastic. Like you said, George C. Scott, I'm a huge fan of uh, 
you know, he's great in um, 12 Angry Men as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, he, he's just fantastic in this movie. And Brad Dorf, yeah, I, I've i always been a big fan. I mean, obviously, Chucky is one of our both of our favorite horror franchises. But even like One Flew Over the, Cuckoo's, the Cuckoo's Nest. Nest yeah. yeah, like he's wonderful in that. And I mean, he is just an A-list top tier actor. I know he's associated mainly with Chucky nowadays but i mean the man's a serious actor and he brings it in this film i mean that you know even when i was kind of ho-hum on the movie i always loved his part and thought he was uh fantastic so yeah the jump scare i won't ruin it for anybody obviously but it to me it is definitely in the top five jump scares of all time i mean it's one of the best (laughs) it's executed Mm -hmm. to perfection and the movie's just wonderful i just give it a shot you know even if you don't want to watch the second exorcist movie uh, you know, no offense, Justin, but uh, you know, maybe watch the first and third one and, <laughs> and you'll be happy. Uh, but yeah, I love the movie. So, uh, you know, Roland or number one, you know, as you said, big surprise. I mean, we could ignore the fourth one altogether. Yeah, I am. <laughs> uh, I'm going to I'll just mention the one thing about the fourth film. Um, what was it called? Depending I don't even remember. I'm, 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 I'm talking about the, the original theatrical cut from Rennie Harlan, not the Paul Schrader version, the, the Rennie Harlan cut before he was, uh, or no, Schrader was replaced by Harlan. But the, the Harlan cut, whatever he put out, whatever that one was called, it bored the shit out of me. I saw that. I, I remember I went to a midnight premiere of that back in 2004, and it was just so boring. I think I slept through the first quarter of the film. But anyway, let's get into the film effect breakdown. <laughs> Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. 15 minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. So, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Kicking it off with the way we do, cast and crew rundown. Alright, so we got Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil. Dude, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna lie, she's my MVP of this movie. She fucking knocks it out. I think she, what she does in this movie doesn't get talked about enough, and I'm after watching this most recent rewatch reviewing, excuse me, for this episode, I'm looking more forward to next month and seeing her come back after 50 years. Um, yeah, I really, really do think her performance in this movie is incredibly underrated. And yes, I mean that very to the very meaning. Underrated doesn't get talked about enough. Um, yeah, she's she's great. I, I you know what I I think part of it is. She's, it's always been a great uh, performance, but I'm coming at it as from a parent now. Watching this movie yes. now from a parent's perspective, I totally understand that why, you know, she does what she does and she acts the way she acts. So I think that adds another level for me as if my kid was going through this, what I would do. So I think that adds something else to me. But yeah, she's great. I love her in Requiem for a Dream, too. I mean, she's wonderful in that, too. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Overlooked. I, I, I feel like her performance is overlooked by, of course, uh, uh, Linda Blair in, as Reagan in this movie. Nothing wrong with that. Not, that's not to say there's anything wrong with Linda's performance. We'll get to her in a moment. Um, I just feel like uh, more attention should have been called to her name because people, like I said, they either bring up Linda Blair or they bring up Max von Sydow who's in the film for all but like 10 minutes. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, to me, he's great, but I think he's a little overrated in the movie. I, you know, I, the one that keeps growing on me more lately is Jason Miller. Yeah, Father Karras. Yeah, I mean, he is just wonderful. He's like, he's like this like Rocky type like father. Like you know, he feels guilt about his mother. Like you know, Jason Miller brings a lot to the role. I mean, I, I think he humanizes that character extremely well and you you know he just feels like a real guy like not just like this um psychologist priest that's thrown in there i mean he feels like a real person i totally sympathize like with when him. he snaps yeah. at the end and just starts fucking like backhanding reagan and fucking wailing her around before he could he takes possession of you know pazulu like that's yeah. like i i felt that performance like watching it the other earlier like that's just so good yeah. and I, I i'm right with you i think he's like Seriously underrated, but Max von Sydow, he was next to my list. Father Lancaster Marin, um, like I said, it's it's hard to judge a performance for all ten minutes. I mean, he's good. Um, I, I, honestly, when when people think about this film and and his role, it's either during the minor exorcism scene in the end, or it's the iconic the iconic shot, which is just his backside. So I don't know. Um, I'm not going to take anything from his performance for what we're given. It's good. It's it's memorable. Um, and that's exactly what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. Would you agree? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kinderman, played by L.J. Cobb. Um, not familiar with this actor. Looking up his stuff, obviously, I'm not going to. Um, not to be ignorant to just old cinema, but that's the majority of his... Um, Filmography, of course, he's one of the jurors from Twelve Angry Men. Just pointing some people out, or some, some pointing some performances out. Um, How the West Was Won in '62. He was from. He was also in both the In Like Flint movies, Our Man Flint, In Like Flint, um, Coogan's Bluff. You know, a lot of these old performances, which I'm sure is appreciated. But I mean, he his last role was a few years after this in '76. So, you know, he. Um, Unfortunately, he passed away that that very year. So, wasn't with us that much longer. And then we got Jack McGowan, who plays Burke Dennings, the director of the movie that Chris is working on. Kind of a minor performance. Um, he's in a few key scenes and kind of makes an unexpected exit in, in the second act of the movie. Um, anything you want to add? Uh, not really. I mean, to me, it's really... This movie's a three-headed monster yes. uh, with Jason Miller, Linda Blair, and Ellen Bernstein. I mean, to me, that's... Like, everybody else is good and, you know, set dressing, but uh, to me, those three are, like, the really the notable ones to talk about. I mean, you know, obviously, Linda Blair has the flashiest role, and she does great. I mean, as a young actor mm-hmm. in that role, I can't imagine being third of this stuff she had to, like, hacked out and do and you know all like the different physical and practical you know, notes practical. from that stuff's funny you bring that up <laughs> yeah so i you know i give her huge credit i mean she's wonderful and 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 she's great in the beginning when she's normal too like you know she's got that very nice like innocence and childlike wonder you know before everything happens with pazuzu so uh, yeah i i really enjoy her as well i didn't want her to be overshadowed no and that's pretty much it. Um, I'll also bring out, uh, bring up. I'll also bring up Eileen Dietz, who's the face and voice of Pazuzu. See her face flash a few scenes throughout the movie. 
Um, you know the scene. You know the Flash. I'm, ta- I'm what I'm talking about. And yeah. she also does the voice of uh, Pazuzu in Reagan's form. And she does it, does it to this day pretty well. Alright, let's talk about the film itself. In the form of a super swift summary of the plot. At an archaeological excavation in northern Iraq, the Adan, an Islamic call to prayer, is heard. Catholic priest and archaeologist Lancaster Marin unearths a medallion of St. Joseph and a statuette representing Pazuzu, a demon from Azrarian. As Marin prepares to leave for Iraq, he sees a large statue of Pazuzu and two dogs fighting. In Washington, D.C., neighborhood of Georgetown, actress Chris McNeil stars in a film directed by her friend Bart Dennings. McNeil rents a well-appointed house with servants and her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan. Father Damien Karras, a psychiatrist who counsels Georgetown University priests, visits his alien mother in New York. He confines to a colleague that he finds unfit in his role, studying the crisis of faith. Chris hears noises in the attic, and Reagan attributes them to her imaginary friend, Captain Howdy. In a local church, a statue of Mary is found desecrated. Chris hosts a party. Karis's friend, Father Dyer, explains Karis's role as counselor, mentioning that his mother died recently. Reagan appears and urinates on the carpet. After Chris puts Reagan to bed, her bed starts shaking violently. Dyer consoles Karis, and Karis ex- expresses guilt at not having been with his mother when she died. Karis dreams of his mother, a St. Joseph medallion, and briefly, a demonic face. Reagan becomes violent. She is subjected to several medical tests, which find nothing physically wrong with her. During a house call, a demon possesses Reagan's body. The possessed Reagan exhibits abnormal strength, and one night, Chris finds the house empty except for a sleeping Reagan. Dennings is found dead at the foot of an outdoor staircase beneath Reagan's window. Homicide detective William Kinderman questions Karis, finding that Dennis's head was turned backwards. Reagan's condition worsens as her body becomes covered with sores. The doctor mentions that exorcism has a remote option, suggesting a possible psychological benefit. Kinderman visits Chris, explaining that the only plausible explanation for Denning's death is that he was pushed from Reagan's window. As Kinderman leaves, the possessed Reagan stabs her genitals with a crucifix. To Chris's horror, the possessed Reagan turns her head backwards and speaks in Denning's voice. Reagan is confined to her bedroom. Chris seeks out Karis, who visits Reagan. Over two meetings, the possessed Reagan claims to be the devil himself, projectile vomits into Karis's face, speaks in tongues, and reacts violently when tap water is sprinkled onto her, which Karis has claimed was holy water, a point against genuine possession. Desperate, Chris confides that the possessed Reagan killed Dennings. At night, Chris's aide calls Karis to the house. They both witness the words, help me, materialize on Reagan's skin. Still ambivalent, Karis concludes that an exorcism is warranted. His superior grants permission on the condition that an experienced priest led the ritual while Karis assists. Marin, having performed an exorcism before, is summoned. Marin arrives at the house, warning Karis that the demon attacks psychologically. As the priests read the Roman ritual, the demon curses them. It focuses on Karis, verbally attacking his loss of faith and guilt over his mother's death. The priests rest momentarily and Marin, shaking, takes nitroglycerin. Karis enters the bedroom where the demon appears as his mother. Showing weakness, Karis exclaims that the demon is not his mother. Marin excuses Karis and continues the exorcism by himself. Karis assures Chris that Reagan will not die and re-enters the room, finding Marin dead. Enraged, 
Karis beats the possessed Reagan and demands that the demon take him instead. The demon rips a medallion of St. Joseph from Karis' neck and begins to possess him, freeing Reagan. Karis hurls himself out the window, tumbling down the stairs outside. Chris and Kinderman enter the room. Chris embraces the healed Reagan, and Kinderman surveys the scene. Outside, Dyer administers the dying Karis' last rites. The McNeils prepare to leave, and Father Dyer says goodbye. Despite having no memory of her ordeal, Reagan is moved by the sight of Dyer's clerical collar to kiss him on the cheek. As the McNeils leave, Chris gives Dyer the medallion found in Reagan's room. Alright, let's talk about the production history. We mentioned before how this is based on writer William Peter Blatty's book. Well, aspects of his novel were inspired by the 1949 exorcism performed by a boy known as Roland Doe, or Robbie Mannheim, by Jesuit priest William S. Boldern. It sold poorly until Blatty discussed the book on Dick Cavett's show and captivated the audience with discussions on whether the devil existed. Soon afterwards, the novel was atop the New York Times bestseller list. Despite Blatty's previous screenwriting experience on Blake Edwards' films, studios had generally been uninterested in adapting The Exorcist before its publication. Talent agent Lou Grade made a modest offer for the rights that Blatty said later he would have accepted due to his difficult financial circumstances, but for the requirement that he produce. Shirley MacLaine, a friend of Blatty's, had been interested, but wanted someone other than Blatty to produce. A later agreement to co-produce with Paul Monash producer of the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, collapsed over script differences and Blatty's discovery that Menashe was trying to wrest control of the film. Blatty's screenplay follows the plot of the novel closely, but narrows the story's focus. Subplots like the desecration of the churches and the subsequent relationship that develops between Karis and Kinderman, Karis's efforts to convince the church bureaucracy to approve the exorcism, and the ongoing medical investigations of race condition are less prominent in the film, as are supporting characters including Chris's household staff, Dennings, and Reagan's father. The overall time frame is condensed. Some scenes, particularly those with sexual net content, were toned down for the movie since an actress of approximately Reagan's age was expected to be cast. The scene where Cra- the scene where Reagan masturbates to a crucifix was, in the book, more prolonged than explicit, and Reagan seriously injured herself yet attaining orgasm. The film also excludes the, uh, the possessed Reagan's constant diarrhea, giving her room a strong foul odor. Blatty also made the screenplay ambiguous, unambiguous about Reagan's condition. In his novel, every symptom and behavior she exhibits that might indicate possession is counterbalanced with a reference to an actual case where the same phenomena were found to have natural scientific causes. Beyond Karis's initial professionalism skepticism, that perspective is absent from the film. The lead characters, particularly Reagan, were not easily cast. Although many major stars of the era were considered for them, Blatty and Friedkin ultimately went with lesser-known actors to the studio's consternation. Jack Nicholson was considered for Karis, and Paul Newman was interested before Blatty hired Stacey Keach. Three A-list actresses at the time, Aubrey Hepburn, Anne Bancroft, and Jane Fonda, were considered for Chris, but rejected the part. Friedkin also rejected Blatty's friend Shirley MacLaine since she had starred in The Possession of Joel Delaney, a similar film. After meeting Carol Burnett, 
freaking believed that she had the range beyond her comedic t- television persona. Blotty agreed, but the studio turned her down. Alan Bernstein received the part after she told Freakin that she was destined to play Chris, discussing the Catholic upbringing that she had later rejected. Studio head Ted Ashley vigorously opposed casting her, but relented after no other alternatives emerged. Freakin had first spoken to Jason Miller, a stage actor and playwright, after a performance of his play that championship season and given him a copy of the novel. Miller had received the Catholic education and studied to be a Jesuit priest for the three years at the Catholic University of America until experiencing a Catholic crisis similar to Karis's. Upon reading the novel, he told Friedkin, Karis is me. Friedkin responded that Keach had already been signed, but granted his request for a screen test. During the test, Miller and Bernstein performed the scene where Chris informs Karis that she suspects Reagan might be possessed. He then filmed the Bernstein interviewing Miller about his life and asked him to recite Mass as if it were the first time. After reviewing the footage the next morning, Freakin realized Miller's dark good looks, haunting eyes, quiet intensity, and low compassionate voice were exactly what the part needed. The studio then bought out Keech's contract. Directors considered for The Exorcist doubted a young actress could carry the film. Mike Nichols had turned it down for that reason. The first actresses considered had been in other successful films and TV series. Pamela Ferdin was turned down as too familiar. Denise Nickerson, who had played Violet in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, said in later interviews that her family found the script too dark. Janet Lee would not let her daughter Janet Lee Cur- Jimmy Lee Curtis audition. Freakin was considering older actresses until Eleanor Blair came in unannounced with her daughter Linda, whose credits were primarily in modeling and a single soap opera role. Freakin later recalled her as smart but not precious, but not precocious, cute but not beautiful, a normal, happy 12-year-old girl. He asked if she knew what The Exorcist was about, and she told him that she had read the book. It's about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a bunch of bad things. Freakin then asked her what she meant. She pushes a man out of her window, uh, out of her bedroom window, and she hits her mother across the face. That act, and she masturbates with a crucifix. Freakin then asked Linda if she knew what masturbation meant. It's like jerking off, isn't it? She then giggled a little bit. Have you ever done that? She asked. Sure, haven't you? She responded. Awkward. Blair was cast after testing with Bernstein. After all these difficult scenes, she tiptoed around and giggled every, after every little bit. Blatty recalled, Freakin said, There wasn't one other actress I would have considered. He had planned to use Blair's electronically treated voice for Pazuzu's dialogue, but in scenes with the priest, it, but, but in scenes with the priest, it lacked the power it required. I'm sorry. But in scenes with the priest, it lacked the power required, so he cast experienced actress Mercedes McCambridge. After filming, Warners did not credit her until Screen Actors Guild arbitration. McCambridge's name was included in the credits on all but the first 30 prints, but the dispute prevented the release of a soundtrack album with excerpts of dialogue. Warners reportedly forced Freakin to use Eleanor Dietz, 15 years Blair Sr. Dietz stood in for Blair in the crucifix scene, the fist fight with Falakaris, and other scenes that were too violent or disturbing for Blair to perform. She recalled that Freakin gave her no notes and said, I wasn't playing a little girl, I was playing the demon that possessed a little girl. 
Dietz appears on camera as the face of Pazuzu. Blair, who recalls Freakin telling her the film would not succeed if she was not in as many shots as possible, estimates that Dietz is in about 17 seconds of the film. Dietz, angry that her contribution to the film had been minimized, minimized, claimed in, uh, the, um, claimed in the media to have performed all the possession scenes. Warner's ultimately measured her screen presence at 28.25 seconds. Warner's the, so Warner Brothers wanted Marlon Brando for the role of Father Marin, but Freakin' refused. He was like, no, fuck that. Um, a Philippi Houseman photograph of Pierre Terhard de Chardin, one of Blatty's inspirations for Father Marin, inspired Freakin' to cast Max Van Cedow instead of Paul Schofield, who Blatty had wanted. In addition to Nichols, Warner Brothers also approached Arthur Penn and Stanley Kubrick to direct. John Borman, who later directed the sequel, The Heretic, not only turned the film down, but advised Warner Brothers against making it, calling it negative and destructive. Blatty rejected one director's idea to set the film in Salem, Massachusetts, because he considered the contrast between the, wild, the worldly nature of the c- capital and the supernatural aspects of the plot to be essential to the story. The studio finally hired Mark Rydell to direct, but Blatty insisted on Friedkin, with whom he had acquainted as being inspired or impressed by the French connection. Plotty saw Freakin, an acquaintance, as a director who can bring the look of the documentary realism to this incredible story and is never going to to lie to me. The studio demurred until Connection was released to commercial success in the Best, Pac- in the Best Picture Academy Award. During his press tour for Connection, Friedkin began reading a copy of the novel Bloody sent him. After the first 20 pages, he canceled his dinner plans and finished the book, finding the story so gripping that he did not consider any problems adapting to the adapting it to film. Freakin' felt that the film should unfold slowly with audiences seeing everything that happened to Reagan and the unsuccessful attempts at treating her condition. An early clash during production led to Warner Brothers telling Bloody that he could not take any action against Freakin'. Afterwards, Bloody informed the studio that he no longer had any responsibility for controlling the budget. While he and Freakin' reconciled, production costs succeeded the initial two Production costs soon exceeded this, the initial $4.2 million, or $20.9 million in 2021, budget. Friedkin manipulated the actors to get genuine reactions. Unsatisfied with O'Malley's performance as dire ministers to the dying cares at the end of the film, he slapped them hard across the face to generate a deeply solemn, yet literally shaken reaction for the scene, offending many Catholic crew members. He also fired blanks without without warning to, to elicit shock from Miller for a take. Dietz recalls him also doing this during the scene where Reagan assaults the doctors at the house. Freakin also told Miller that, that the vomit porridge colored to resemble pea soup and pumped through a hidden tube would hit him in the chest during the projectile vomiting scene and rehearsed it that way. When it, but then when they filmed it, the soup hit his face, resulting in a disgust reaction. Crew members found Freakin difficult to work with. On the first day of shooting, he had a wall removed to create space for the dolly to back up for a shot of bacon frying, then sent the prop master to look for preservative-free bacon, difficult to find at the time since he did not like the way it curled. Another crew member recalled returning after three days of sick leave to find Freakin still shooting the same scene. Dietz recalls the main delay being reshoots, even of scenes that had been difficult to stage and film for the first time, such as Reagan's um, bed shaking, 
people were literally placing bets on what he would reshoot next. He also fired and rehired crew regularly. One crew member recalls seeing freaking shake hands warmly with somebody and then seconds later tell the second person to get this guy out of here. Get this guy out of here, earning him the nickname Wacky Willie. Owen Roisman, director of photography on the French Connection, worked, again, worked in his position again on The Exorcist. He was in charge of filming every scene except for the Iraqi prologue, shot by Billy Williams. Roisman and Freakin wanted The Exorcist, like the previous film, to appear to have been shot in available light. The McNeil house was, unlike house interiors in horror films such as Psycho, designed to look normal and, invite, and inviting, but lit to suggest an anonymous presence. Otherwise, Roisman said, Freakin demanded complete realism and wanted to see pictures with glass in them, mirrors on the walls, and all the other high-reflective surfaces you would naturally find in a house. We never tried to cover anything up, cover anything up, as we would normally do for experience in shooting. This meant that the kitchen set, which much stainless glass and glass was virtually impossible to light beyond the practical ceiling fixtures and whatever other lights we could manage to sneak in and hide, we'd walk in, hit the switch and shoot through not much choice. Principal photography began August 17th, August 14th, 1972. Although the film is set in D.C., many interior shots were shot in New York City. The McNeil residence interiors were filmed at, at CECO Studios in Manhattan with Karras' confrontation with his uncle. Shot at Goldwater Memorial Hospital now the site of Cornell Tech on Roosevelt Island in the, re- in the East River between Manhattan and Queens. The scenes with Karras' mother in the hospital were formed in Bellevue. The scene where Father Karras listens to, to the tapes of Reagan was filmed at the basement of Fordman University's Keaton Hall, where O'Malley was an assistant position professor of theology. The film's opening sequences were filmed in and near Mosul, Iraq at the time when the U.S. and Iraq did not have diplomatic relations, Warner Brothers feared that Freakin and his crew might not be able to return. He negotiated filming arrangements directly with local officials on the ruling of Ba'ath Party, who required that he hire local workers as the crew and that he taught filmmaking to interested residents. The archaeological dig site shown is Hatra, southwest of Mosul. Temperatures during the day reached 130 degrees Fahrenheit, limiting shooting to dawn and dusk. The exterior of the McNeil House was a family home on 36th and Prospect Streets in Washington, D.C. A mansard roof was added to account for the attic scene. The neighboring stairs were padded with a half-inch rubber for Karis' death. The house was set back slightly from the steps so the crew built an eastward extension with a false front to allow the stunt double playing Karras to fall down directly. Many Georgetown locations on and off campus were used. Bernstein's first scene where she lectures the protesters was shot on the steps of Healy Hall. She is also seen walking down the steps of Lowinger Library. Other, other scenes used in the interiors of Dow Green Chapel and the University President's Office used as the Archbishop's Office. One scene was filmed in the Tombs, a popular local bar. During principal photography, the editor was then hired, had no prior movie experience, and was not allowed to cut the raw footage. Freakin hired three editors. Jordan Leonopoulos, credited as supervising editor. 
Norman Gay, and Evan Lottman. A fourth, Bud Smith, recalls Freakin asking him to work on The Exorcist after shooting Wrapped, telling Smith he would be the lead. Smith asked Freakin to let him edit one large rack of footage from the Iraq sequence and work through a weekend to recut it to a rhythm based on the south of a blacksmith hammering on an anvil near Marin. He also created the flash face trailer for the film with a montage of faces making a strobe-like effect using under 10 string music ending at almost 90 seconds with the title. Freakin said in 2018 that Warner Brothers feared it would scare audiences too much. He considers it the film's best trailer, which I would agree. Smith and the other three uh, editors shared the film's Academy Award nomination for editing. Freakin's final cut was 140 minutes long. He felt it was perfect, but Warner Brothers insisted he trim it down to two hours to allow for more daily screenings. Freakin cut roughly 10 to 12 minutes. Some of the excluded scenes were Blotty's favorites, including the original ending with Dyer and Kinderman connecting and agreeing to go to the movies in the future, and the scene where Karis and Marin take a break from the exorcism and discuss the demon's motivation for possessing Reagan. These scenes had been in the novel, and he believed that in the movie they would have made it, it would have made it clear in the end that good had triumphed. Ron Nagel, Doc Siegel, Gonzalo Guevara, and Bob Fine created the sound effects, mixing bees, dogs, hamsters, and pigs into the demon's voice. The sound of Reagan's head rotating was made by twisting a leather wallet. Freaking was personally invited in the four-month sound process, the last aspect of the film completed, finished just before release. Jim Nelson, whom Freakin had hired to supervise the mixing, recalls the director being particularly demanding, treating his then-girlfriend, who was among those assisting in the process, like a dog. Mike Goldfield's tubular bells became very popular after its use in the film. Freakin recalled in 2015 that he wanted something like Brahms' lullaby with a kind of childhood feel. He had gone to see Callie, who directed him in the company's nearby music library. There he found Oldfield's records, which Warner Brothers had not planned to release, and persuaded the company to buy the rights. Lalo Schifferin said that he would he had written six minutes of music for, for the Flash Face and the working score. Trailer executives told Freakin that they wanted softer music, but Freakin never told him. Freakin rejected the score. In 2005, Schifferin said that it was said this was in, rela- in retaliation for an earlier incident between the two. Schifrin denies claims he used his original Exorcist music several years later for the Amityville Horror. According to a 1998 documentary, Freakin threw away the tapes of Schifrin's score in a studio parking lot. In his Castle of Frankenstein interview shortly after the film's release, Freakin said that he had hired an unnamed composer and did a score all right, and I thought it was terrible, just overstated and dreadful. He composed instead to use the music he had given the composer as inspiration. Bernard Herrmann, famous for his scores for Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock, turned down the job after viewing a rough cut. He felt the minimal opening credits deprived the composer of the opportunity to establish a musical mood with an overture. In a 1975 interview with High Fidelity magazine, Herman said that Friedkin adjusted his intention to use an organ, saying, I don't want any Catholic music in my picture, and insisted on sharing composing credit. In the soundtrack, Linear Notes for 1977's Sorcerer, Friedkin said that if he had heard of the music of Tangerine Dream earlier, he would have had them score The Exorcist instead. And, but... He used modern classic compositions, including the portions of the 72 cello concerto number one of Polymorphia and other pieces by Polish composer Zizdow Penderecki. 
Five Pieces for Orchestra by Austrian composer Anton Webern, as some other mu- original music by Jack Nietzsche. All heard only during scheme transitions. The 2000 cut features new music by Steve Boddicker, as well as brief source music by Les Baxter. The Greek song on the radio as Father Karras leaves his mother's house is Paramythiki Mu, My Tale, sung by Giannis Kalatsis. Part of Hans Werner Heinz's 1966 composition, Fantasia for Strings, is played over the closing credits. There are only 17 minutes of music in the two-hour film, What I Wanted, Friedkin said. What I, what I think we have in the movie is understated music. The music is just a presence like a cold hand on the back of your neck rather than assertive. In Bill Event review of the film, critic Judith Christ praised the film's sparing and adventurous use of music. Lawsuits among the creators of The Exorcist began before the film was released and continued into the 21st century. In November 73, Blotty sued the studio and Friedkin over both the credits in Friedkin banning him from the set. Friedkin said that he only barred him from post-production. Blotty settled for the William Peter Blotty's The Exorcist line. In 1974, Dietz claimed Friedkin had made her sign a non-disclosure agreement, while Friedkin had, in earlier publicity for the film, denied any use of a double for Blair. By the end of the month, Dietz was saying that she neither claimed to have been the only double for the possession scenes, nor talked about it to the media. The Screen Actors Guild ruled her contract as not not binding, but then Dietz declined to arbitrate the matter. In 2001, Following the release of the extended version, which restored 11 minutes of footage and did well commercially and commercial- critically, Blatty and Freakin sued Warner Brothers, allegedly that they had been cheated out of profits that they would receive for help promoting the film. Later that year, they sued again, alleging that Warner Brothers had further defrauded them in several other ways. Nine years later, Blatty sued Warner again asking for the opportunity to inspect the studio's records and accounts to see whether he had paid what he was owed. So real quick, we got an exorcist curse, of course. So, due to, the, due to production problems, due to production problems and accidents on set, the exorcist took over 200 days to wrap. The film went 200... The, the film went 2.1... 2.5 million or 12.5 in modern dollars over budget ultimately costing the studio 12 million dollars early on shooting was delayed six weeks after a blue a bird flew into a circuit breaker on the house sets starting a fire that destroyed all of them except for reagan's room later another set was severely damaged by the sprinkler system the 10-foot statue of pazuzu was shipped to hong kong instead of iraq causing a two-week delay Injuries to cast and crew also affected production. Bernstein and Blair having have lasting consequences from back injuries. Bernstein's occurred during the scene where the possessed Reagan throws Chris backwards. The take used in the film left her unable to film for two weeks and, le- and using crutches for the rest of the shoot. Fracturing her... Co six was caused by her chronic ba- problems due to inadequate inadequate early treatment. Blair fractured her lower spine after being too loosely strapped to the red- rocking bed. A take also used in the finished film. She developed sclerosis. It was far more serious than I ever imagined and really affected my health negatively for a long time. She also developed a lifelong 
aversion to cold from all of her, from all her time in the refrigerated bedroom set and only a nightgown and a long underwear. A carpenter cut his thumb off, and a lighting crew technician lost a toe in different accidents. Other people connected with the film and their family members died. McGowan died a week after he completed his scenes as Dennings. Miliaros also died like her character before the film was finished. Deaths among and close to the crew, including the night watchman and the operator of the refrigeration system for Reagan's room, along with an assistant cameraman's newborn. Blair's grandfather died during the first week of production, and Von Sydow had to return to Sweden after his first day of shooting because his brother had died. Further delaying shooting, Miller's son Jason Patrick nearly died when a motorcycle when a motorcycle struck him. Motorcycle struck him. Several years after the film's release, Paul Bateson, the technician in the um, angiography scene, was convicted of murdering journalist Addison Vrail in 2015. The Hatra. The World Heritage Site, where the prologue was shot, was damaged by ISIL members, militants, and has, since 2019, been under conservation by the Iraqi State Board of Antiquities and Heritage, SBAH. Freaking believe that there might have been some supernatural interference. I'm not a convert to the occult, he told the horror film magazine Castle of Frankenstein. But after all I've seen on this film, I definitely believe in demonic possession. We were plagued by strange and sinister things from the beginning. To mollify the crew, freaking asked Father Birmingham, the film's technical advisor, to perform an exorcism on the set. Birmingham instead blessed the cast and crew, believing that an actual exorcism would only make the cast more anxious. British film historian Sarah Crawler believes the stories of the curse were disseminated by Warner Brothers. They spread speculation of the curse prior to release. It was an extremely hot topic in global media after it hits, when it hit cinemas, she told iNews.com in 2018, likening the curse to producer William Castle's elaborate marketing gimmicks. Crowder believes most of the aspects of the curse are really just the result of Freakin's driving relentless production. Blatty agreed, telling Kermode that Freakin had started the curse story with an interview during production in which he blames devils for the stories for the film's many delays. But for God's sake, tell said Blatty, if you shoot something for over a year, people are, for a year, people are going to get hurt. People are going to die. These things just happen. Blair told Kermode that stories of the supposed curse circulated because viewers chose to see a scary film and maybe they wanted to believe all those rumors because it helped the whole process, she said. In 2000, Bloody joked that there is no exorcist curse. I am the exorcist curse. When asked if the death of, of Blair's pet mouse was related to it. So the film kicks off in northern Iraq. Um, it's, I don't know. I just think it's interesting to kick this movie off the way it does. It starts something that the film doesn't finish. That's why I, I say it's interesting. Because it kicks off with like this origin of Pazuzu. But the film doesn't exactly tell us what it is. It kind of makes you wait until the sequel that goes into all that. It kind of leaves you off you know, after five minutes or so, however long the, the sequence is before it takes us to the DC for the rest of the film. But... What I'm getting at is, like, I just think it's interesting for them to start the film here, only to not really go call back to it at all for the movie. There's a couple of references here and there sprinkled, but, like, there's no real payoff, and that doesn't even occur until um, however many years later when they, they did The Heretic, the sequel. 
that's when they goes into the backstory of what Pazuzu is. I don't even think they call no. Pazuzu Pazuzu in this movie. Not, do they? Not until the sequel, yeah. Okay. So I just think that's really interesting. Both that and the fact that they casted Max von Sydow and aged him up the way they did instead of casting an actual actor who's, you know, appropriately aged. I just think it's weird that they did that still to this day. Um, I mean, it's kind of on point knowing how we know how he lo- what he looks like actually aged. Um, I don't know. It's just it's some, it's a, it's a couple of decisions off the, right off the bat that I'm kind of like, really, movie? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't mean to critique it. I I, I don't because believe me, if I'm going to critique anything, it's going to be this. There's really not much to critique in this movie, honestly. And we'll get more on that later. Yeah, I I view the opening as less of like a mythos and backstory and more just setting up the um the sorry character? father Marin character. Yeah, I I think that's just more setting up. He's like this globe trotting. He uh is an expert on ancient uh evil and exorcisms. So I, I think it's more so that than anything else. But, you know, it, it's nice stuff to also set up for the sequel. But And that's probably the right answer. I'm just looking at it from a different perspective. I'm just looking at it as, yeah, you're starting something you can't finish. But the right answer is obviously, yes, this is actually here to service the film as an introduction to, you know, Don Seedell's Father Mary, yeah. who, like I said, is in the film for all of 10 minutes. That's it. So... I don't know. They, it's interesting, though, that they, they aged him up. So you've got Dick Smith doing the makeup in this film, and he created some key special effects, making him look 30 years older in facial close-ups. Many viewers did not realize that he was made up at all. Critic Pauline Kael, in her generally unfavorable New Yorker review, called it one of the most convincing aging jobs I've ever seen. It took four hours to apply the makeup every morning. Friedkin speculated that if there was a regular Academy Award for makeup, Smith would have received it. And like I said, the demon that's seen but not named throughout the film is Pazuzu. It's a demon known in Azrian and Babylon mythology as the demon that brings fam. Oh my god. Demon that brings famine during the dry seasons and locusts during the rainy seasons. This is all shit that you're probably going to learn in the sequel. He was the king of the demons of the wind. And now that I think about it, there's a locust shot. I think there's a fucking POV locust shot in the exorcist part too. Oh, yeah. Justin, I'm pretty sure he's familiar with that shot. So we go to Georgetown, D.C. We get our introductions to Chris McNeil and her 12-year-old daughter, Reagan. And we see Chris in her profession being admired as an actress while living a normal life at home as a single mother with the help of maids and housekeepers. Carl is the main housekeeper of the house. We see him referenced by name quite a bit in this film. Um, and Reagan's just presented as a standard preteen, full of big ideas and imagination. Um, you know, the future's your best friend, you know what I mean, kind of shit. Um, but, she, like we talked about before, does, does a good job in the role. She's just this innocent little girl, and her mother, you know, big, big lifestyle, you know, big, big known actress, but then we see her grounded at home, you know, just being a single mother, for all we know. And then we get another introduction to our core character, and that's Damien Karras, Father Karras. And we first see him admiring Chris on set while she's outside, because she's filming, like, funny enough, right down the street from her house. They're filming, like, one location in the street in D.C. How convenient is that? Because she, like, walks home from set. How many actors do you know, like, walk home from a big, you know, movie yeah, set? Yeah, I know. It, 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 when I first watched this movie, I didn't even really 
get that part. I don't know if I just missed it. You get it? I didn't like. I knew right. they're rich just because of like the way the setting of the house is and the fact they have like staff that works there. But I, it didn't even occur right. to me at first that she was like an actress. It's just because I was like, who just walks home? Like I thought she was like some sort of like teacher or something like that. Like you know, she's like. Just right. walking home from school or something. I didn't realize that at first. Just, the first time watching this, I definitely thought, I you know, I didn't realize she was an actress. Like I, de- I definitely thought uh, Ellen Burstyn's character. I, I thought she was like a teacher or something walking over from school. It was kind of <laughs> funny. I didn't pick up on that the first time. Just like I said, the father of Kara's introduction. We see him first admiring Chris on set, sort of, and then Chris notices him counseling another priest during her walk home. And then we see him visit his Italian mother in a scene that can best be described as the closest representation of an old Italian mother until Scorsese's Goodfellas came around. That's how I was just I was just seeing the entire scene from Goodfellas where like Pesci and all them go back to his mom's house after killing Billy Bats. And I don't know, just that scene came to mind. Uh, Friedkin is carefully setting up all the domino pieces here. He... It's taking the time to start the movie with giving each main character, you know, he's giving them even Steven screen time so we can get to know everybody thoroughly. We know Chris is the busy starlet, but she sincerely loves her daughter, Reagan, and would do anything in the world for her. And speaking of, we know Reagan is an innocent preteen who loves her mother. She has this imaginary character named Captain Howdy. Hey, where'd this come from? I found it. Where? Closet. Been playing with it? Yep. You know how? I'll show you. Wait a minute. You need to. No, you don't. I do it all the time. Oh, yeah? Well, let's both play. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers. Oh, Captain Howdy, yes. Nice. Oh, that is. Here, I'll show you. Captain Howdy, do you think my mom's pretty? Captain Howdy? Father Damien is a priest who is struggling with faith but still believes in the name of God. And then there's Father Marin, who, with anyone here, He's our wild card for lack of character development. He opens the film to set up the film as MacGuffin, but we really don't know much about him outside of the fact that he's also a man of faith and he's heading somewhere other than northern Iraq. And then we learn about Catherine Howdy, like I just uh, mentioned, thanks to Reagan's childlike imagination. And that's who Reagan says caused the noises occurring in the attic that we see, or rather hear from a few scenes before. Because, uh, Chris notices all these eerie sounds coming from the attic, and she asks Carl about it, and he says it's rats. No, she thinks it's rats, and says, I thought you said you took care of the rat problem, and Carl's like, I did. And she's like, no, there's definitely still rats up there, so she goes up to investigate, and then we get more of Karis meeting various priests about them losing faith. Because that's kind of like what he does. He's kind of like, when people start losing their faith, like he comes and sees them to kind of like build up their their whatever you want to call it. I'm not a religious person. He's a shrink. He's a psychologist. Yeah, yeah, okay. He helps people with their mental health. Gotcha. Um, Maybe I missed that point. 
But then we see, you know, this is kind of like the start of Karis' downward spiral. Suddenly loses his mother to a nursing home, and then she passes away. The growing number of priests confiding with him, issues with his family. Things are only about to get worse for Father Karis, if he only knew. Yeah, and, I, you know, I really feel for him because, you know, he wants to take care of his mom, right. but obviously... He doesn't. They don't have the money for her to go to like a fancy private place, so she gets institutionalized. And you know, it's just something that happens. Like it doesn't make Father Karras a bad guy. It's just, you know, just the reality in which we live in. So you know, I definitely feel sympathy for him there. You know, he's doing the best he can for his mom, but you know, he has a lot of guilt over what happens with her. Right, and that plays into a lot of the theme of the film, and of course, what happens towards the, the, the later part of the movie, and that's what Freakin wants. He does a good job of doing that. That's good character development. Um, and then we get this drunken house party at Chris's house with a guest list full of obnoxious cast and crew members from the studio film that she's doing. Of course, it's a Warner Brothers film because it's a Warner Brothers movie, and I love Reagan's subtle warning. It's like a death warning, followed by her urinating on the rug. It's the, the way Linda Blair is able to just put this blank gaze on her face and make it work as good as she does. And then the way the rocking bed suddenly happens out of nowhere after this, beginning with Reagan's piercing scream. Like, it's just terrifying. The louder, the scarier. It just, everything kind of happens, like, right away. You know, she comes down, pees on the rug. Next thing you know, yeah. next thing you know, you hear the scream coming from upstairs, and then the bed's just going crazy with her on it, like not knowing what to do. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like everything's just been grounded so far. Like you know, it's just you're getting introduced to these characters. It feels like you're living in just like the normal real world, and then this is like the first little taste of uh, supernatural crazy shit that's gonna happen in this movie. And I'm glad that they didn't have people like kind of like go gaslighting them, attributing it to like an earthquake or some bullshit. Like, they didn't go down that road, thank God. So, just props to Vladdy uh, for that. So, we see the first flash of Pizuzu's face during... Um, it's The scene here of Karis is having a drunken nightmare about his mother. He's in the street, and he sees her. It's a crowded street, and he sees his mom from afar, and he starts running towards her. And as that's happening, you see a flash. And that's the first of, like... A handful of flashes that we see in this movie it's it's very there's a lot of brief like blinking you'll miss it moments it's like a cutaway shot um intended to create unease for the viewer um you know it's here uh it's like a black and white grimacing face played again by eileen deets who does the voice as well um it's it happens here um uh, to just two other places where the image is displayed with Reagan lying on the bed, turns to look at Father Marin and Father Karras, and then just after the head-turning scene. So the statue of Pazuzu, encountered by Father Marin in the opening scene, that just kind of like gets brought up and nothing else happens really, can clearly be seen in the in the background during the exorcism after the room is violently shaken. In the version you've never seen, the images are superimposed over other scenes as well. The demon's face can be seen on the hood of the stove where Chris McNeil has just returned home from speaking with the doctors and the lights go out in the kitchen. The next image can be seen in the scene directly following the former when Chris goes to check on Reagan. The face of the statue flashes very briefly, briefly but brightly onto Reagan's bedroom door as Chris opens it. 
When Chris closes the window, realizing that Sharon isn't present and leaves the room, the full statue is superimposed softly on the wall to the left of Reagan's bedroom door. In a longer version of the film released on Blu-ray called Extended Director's Cut, these last two images of the statue have been removed again. Um, I can't comment on the version you've never seen. That's how I, you know, that, that's what I call it. Um, I've never seen it. It came out in 2000. I remember very well when it came out, but that was, again, after I had seen the original version and just wasn't a fan, so I just didn't give it the time of day. I owe it a watch. I, I, I would love to go back and watch it now that I have a, you know, a, a better understanding of the movie and I, I love it as much as I do now. Um, I have the, you know, the chance to watch that version and, and compare the two. I know there's there's fans of both versions, um, so I really can't comment on it, like I said, because I've never seen it. I know it's got, like, the infamous spider walk scene, which I've never seen. You know, I've only seen stills of it. I, I, I have no idea of the context of how it plays into the movie whatsoever, because I've never seen that version. So, have you? Yeah, I've seen it once. Okay. Uh, I, I saw Do you it, prefer it, obviously, back when it first came out, but... Uh, I can't say I prefer one or the other. Okay. It didn't make a huge impression on me. The only thing that really stuck out in my head, and I think for most people, uh, what you brought up is a spider walk. I, th- I think that would be about the biggest thing I remember out of that. I don't I don't really remember all the other little stuff. Yeah, it, it seems from the notes that I took that I just, you know, read off that we see a lot more shots of Pazuzu that flash throughout the movie in different arrangements. Other than that, the spider walk scene. I'm sure there's some more background because a lot of this film is character development. So I'm sure there's a lot more scenes to help better understand these characters. If I were to be a betting man, I would guess there's some more scenes involving the, uh, um, the inspector Kinderman, his character. Cause he kind of like just shows up and you don't really know too much about him other than he's just a, a, a cop on the case really. But that's just, you know, one's guess. Have not seen, having not seen that version. So, um, I, I wanted to read off a note that I put here in my notes around this part of watching the movie. Part of the fear that's fabricated within the movie comes from Ellen Bernstein's performance. The pain and sheer horror in her voice as she tries describing the events regarding her daughter is both incredible and effective. Her Academy Award nomination for this film is fitting. The fact that she lost to Glenda Jackson for a touch of class is puzzling. Um, and that just good ties into our conversation earlier about, you know, just how underrated her performance in this movie is. And I just wrote that down in my notes and wanted to, you know, say it. So we get then, uh, the angiography scene is next. And this is, watching it back today, it's nothing. I... But back then, in 73, you would have thought Leatherface was skinning actual flesh off a human being. To describe the, the impact of the small scene in which a needle spurts blood from Reagan's neck, it caused audiences the most discomfort, according to Blatty, who himself never watched it. Friedkin, too, has found its deception of medical science impinging upon the, the innocence of this little girl disturbs the audience the most, more than any of the film's possession scenes. It has been criticized as unappetizing, the film's most needless scene, and revolting. British comedian Graham Garden, who has a medical degree, agreed the scene was genuinely disturbing in his interview for the New Scientist. He called it irresponsible. 
Critic John Kenneth Moore wrote in horror films of the 1970s that the scene draws its power by merely recording what occurs and not adding anything. It looks, sounds, and feels totally real for a time. It is medicine that possesses Reagan, not the devil. In a 2021 article in the History of Human Sciences, Amy Chambers of Manchester Metropolitan University makes a similar observation. Medical professionals have described the scene, not in the novel, but added to the film to reflect changes in technology as a realistic deception of the procedure. It is also of historical interest as radiologists were increasingly using a more distant artery rate instead of a carotid uh, for, the, for the puncture. It's around her neck on the side. It has also been described as the most realistic depiction of a medical procedure in a popular film. On his 2012 commentary on the DVD release for the 2000 cut, Friedkin claimed that the scene was used in radiological training film for years afterward. And like I said, this scene is really nothing. I can understand, you know, its impact 40, 50 years ago. But looking back, watching it now today, it, it, it's, it's kind of a blink and you'll miss it moment. When the blood spurts out of her, of, of the, the the device they put in her, you, you don't see what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, it makes me squirm a little because I don't like needles, but I I really don't think it's anything like terrible right. or exploitative. I just think it's you know setting up the fact that you know it, it's logical. Like you know, Chris you know, has a her daughter doesn't know what's going on, so take her to the doctors. That's what I would do too. And they're running tests, and you know, it just adds a little bit of drama to the proceedings i mean i i think it's also a testament like you know how much attachment people have to linda blair in this movie like she you know she does a good job in the limited time early on when she's you know acting normal like you don't want anything to happen to this young little girl so i think that's part of it too is you just don't want to see anything bad happen to her but yeah i i yeah i don't think it's a big deal i don't know why there would be any kind of controversy i don't i don't think it's exploitative or anything like that yeah and then we get Reagan's possessed form for the first time. Dr. Klein. Yes, I'm Dr. Klein. This is Dr. Tanny. Sharon, things have gotten worse since I found you. I think you better come upstairs. Is she having spasms again? Yeah, but they've gotten violent. Did you give her the medication I gave you? Yes. What was that? Well, that was Ritalin. Chris, doctors. Fuck me. Followed by Chris seeking a, psych- a psychologist for Reagan after getting the results back from the angiology. She's not fully de- in demonic form and appearance, but that's a slow progression. Um, personally, I think the, lot, the, the massive lump in her throat that we see here is worse than the little blood splatter. That's just my me and my nerves, what makes me tick and what doesn't. Um, I don't like needles myself, but when it comes to the film, I... I 
kind of just say to myself, eh, that's just, you know, Hollywood makeup and shit. But that, when her throat just kind of like swells up and like kind of like, like a frog, a bullfrog, it's like, it makes me kind of squirm myself. No one talks about that, but hey. But this is iconic, you know, fuck me, fuck me. It's, it's the first time we see her. She's starting to show, you know, sort of, you know, signs of, of the change. Of um, you know, we we see Dick Smith applying a little bit of makeup here and there, but she's not in full form just yet. Uh, this is and then Father Karras, he's roped into the entire situation after um, Detective Kinderman. Uh, actually, I, I skipped the part because right around here is where the director of the movie, um, Burke, he uh, Chris has him watch Reagan. While she goes and runs some errands or does something, whatever she does. And she comes home and he's dead at the foot of the steps outside of her window. So, and it, it all happens off screen. So, you know, if you missed the scene, no, you didn't. Unless it's in that director's cut that I talked about. I, I'm not familiar with seeing an actual shot of him dying. It just, we hear about it. And then Kinderman, the detective, is just inspecting everything you see him at the foot of the steps he sees the, the the pazuzu statue without the head and he's trying to rope karis into like going to see a movie with him to like kind of like kind of get him into questioning and stuff because he's he's a, he's a prime suspect in his case in his eyes and yeah like i said karis is roped into the situation because kinderman's questioning him because he thinks that he did it and then he said that he was watching reagan while chris was getting the angiology results that's where she was she was getting the results and that's when burke dies so chris finds the cross underneath the reagan's pillow after all this at the same time the, the detective finds the statue i talked about at the foot of the steps or the head is at the bottom of the steps then he gets starstruck when going to explain to chris what he Things happen, and then the horror begins with Reagan. Do you know what she did, your cunting daughter? Do you know what she did, your cunting daughter? <laughs> yeah. That scene, dude. This is when it really starts. Yes. Yeah. And this is when things really start to kick off. Like we start, we hit the fucking pedal to the floor. So while filming the scene where the possessed Reagan masturbates to a crucifix, Dietz and Friedkin. Elaine Dietz, rather, and, and, and William Freakin, the director, had this long conversation about the right way to jerk off. And I showed him why a woman has to churn her wrist more than a man does. At the time, Freakin said that the scene's power over audiences came from its unusual combination of sex and religion. To many viewers, it lasted much longer than its 50 seconds. It, he had filmed much more, but ultimately decided that it was about how much I could take. The scene's power, Kermode writes... Uh, from Freakin's head-on approach, centering it on screen with bright and punctuating the thrust with a stabbing sound. Blatty pleaded with Freakin to stop destroying the film. Freakin responded that the scene would be one of the film's biggest draws. When it turned out it was, Blatty found it terribly depressing. Um, I don't find it depressing. I, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's much, but I think the film kind of needs to go there. This film, at this point in the movie, like, I feel like the audiences are going into this are waiting for something to happen. And not only does something happen, 
but something fucking happens. And not only that, but this is also the scene where we see the the, the head do the twist for the first time because it happens twice. This is the, this, this is kind of like the main time when it occurs. Um. Uh, yeah. Do, do you want to respond to that, Corey? <laughs> yeah, I mean. All this crazy shit. I mean, you have to have something. I think, you know, I think that's where Blatty, you know, I I understand where he's coming from, but I think that's where I agree with freaking disagree with Blatty. If you want this movie to be mainstream, you have to give people something. I mean, you can't, it can't be a procedural <laughs> movie the whole time. Like, right. yeah, it's a slow burn to start off with, but if the movie continues in that fashion the whole time, you know, I, I I think its impact, uh, you know, in cultural relevance would be much diminished. I mean, I, I, I think it just has mainstream appeal. It does a good job of setting everything up and then it pays off. And I think this is the kind of the payoff mm-hmm. and the thing that a lot of people remember. A lot of people might not necessarily remember the character work or uh, some of the acting, but uh, everybody remembers the head spinning and, uh, you know, the crucifix, masturbation and all the crazy shit the pea soup like you know everybody remembers that stuff uh you know that's so i think freaking's right i think you have to throw it in there it's kind of like giving the people what they want you know even though they might not you know they might not know they want that Mm -hmm. but you know that you have to kind of throw that in there so i you know i i think it's all great i you know it just it's uncomfortable yeah but uh i i think it definitely adds a layer to the movie if it was too tame, I, I I don't know if we'd be talking about it in the same way. Yeah, you got to go there, man. You got to. The scenes where the possessed Reagan's head rotates so she appears to be looking directly backwards drew notice from audiences and critics. All I can tell you is that the way you think I did it is not the way we did it, Freakin' told Castle of Frankenstein at the time. Like the film's other special effects, it was performed live. A life-sized animated dummy of Reagan was built. Critic Mark Kermode says the scene's impact results from the audience not expecting it so soon after the crucifix scene. He believes its recurrence during the exorcism was added on set since it was neither in the novel nor the screenplay. Blatty had argued against it, telling Freakin that supernatural doesn't mean impossible. Freakin has started a shot of Karis, suggesting the scene just might be a hallucination. When audiences reacted strongly, Blatty said Freakin, prove me an idiot once again. Special effects supervisor Marcel Vercu... I can't pronounce his name. Built the latex dummy with help from makeup artist Dick Smith. They tested its realism by putting it in the front seat of a taxi cab, and when enough people were looking, turning the head... It was so realistic that Blair felt uncomfortable in its presence. They had given the dummy's face the capability to move and appear to speak. Adding a condom to its throat would... Oh, this is how they did the throat thing. Adding a condom so its throat would bulge. The, the tube was added for simulated breathing, which produced the requisite clouds of vapor. So we see Chris has had enough, and so she turns to Father Karras for help. And even though he initially refuses saying that she would need to know a foreign language that she's never been taught and a bunch of other things in order for this to be a true you know, reasoning for an exorcism. Look, I'm only against the possibility of doing your daughter more harm than good. 
Nothing you could do could make it any worse. I can't do it. I need evidence that the church would accept his signs of possession. Like what? Like her speaking in a language she's never known or studied. What else? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I thought you were supposed to be an expert. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Now, if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd realize that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. You ask me what I think is best for your daughter. Six months under observation in the best hospital you can find. You show me Reagan's double. Same face, same voice, everything. And I'd know it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! But then agrees to sit down and talk to her possessed daughter, and we get the memorable first encounter between the two while Karis records the ordeal for the church between Reagan and himself. And I love this scene because the way she's just sitting there... And he's just having a conversation with her. And she's speaking to him in Latin. And then she changes it to French. And then she she's just mixing all these different you know foreign languages that clearly she's never been taught before. Um, maybe she has, but who knows? Who am I to judge? But th- the point is, like, the scene, it's kind of like the calm before the storm. Because he's just, like I said, sitting there having a conversation. And he's just being really coy with her. And she's even being subtle herself until he gets the quote-unquote holy water, which is obviously not holy water. He tells her it's tap water. Or he tells Chris in the following scene it's tap water. But she reacts to it violently like it was holy water. And, you know, like I said, it's just, it's, it's just a calm little scene between these two. I've always liked this scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in this movie. Um, how about you? Yeah, I, I like it. I there it's kinda I view it as they're sizing each other up. Yeah, uh yeah. Karis and Pazuzo. It's just, you know, their first introduction and you know, whether the demon wanted to admit it or not, you know, the, the father they you know, the religion has power, so yeah. you know, the demon wouldn't admit that. So but they're just kinda two opponents sizing each other up. Uh that's the way I kinda look at it before the final showdown that's coming up. And uh, you know, I just wanna jump into it. It's like I feel so much for Chris, like, you know, I've had a similar situation in my personal life where, you know, you're trying, somebody's going to the doctors in my family, there's no answers, the doctors aren't coming up with answers, and it's just the stress level, and, you know, I totally sympathize with Chris there, and it's just, you know, I think that's what really adds to the movie, is just the mom trying to figure out what's going on with her daughter, and it's like, going to the doctors, and there's just no medical reason Hearing the doctors come up with BS about the front lobe and Brother, that, all this other split personalities, yeah. all this other stuff. And it's just, you know, she's like, oh, nope, need an exorcism now. So I, you know, I just, I, I, I just really like that part of the movie. I think it's really well done. That was Sean for the longest time. So I, I can, I can, you know, yeah. sympathize as well. I get it too. 
you know, dealing with that with Sean before he passed, you know, doctors not knowing what was wrong, endless cycles of nothingness, so I get it, you know, I mean, I, I get it more for you because, you know, the, the, the relationship, you know, it was your own son, your own flesh and blood, so, um, but this all leads to the reintroduction of Father Mayor Max Vancito, who the church picked to perform the exorcism because Karis takes everything, all the evidence back to the church with them, and they agree to the exorcism, but they want someone else to perform it, not him. Um, so there, uh, Karis gets called by one of the housekeepers, and she shows him, they, they, they go into the bedroom at night while, while Reagan's sleeping, and she lifts up her um, night, nightgown, and her stomach has helped me written across her abs. So, getting back to the look of the possessed Reagan, Freakin and Smith drew inspiration from the crucifix scene. If she had injured herself masturbating to it, they reasoned it was likely that under Pazuzu's control, she might have also deliberately scoured her face. So he scourged her face. So he decided to have the makeup grow out of self-inflicted wounds to the face that became gangrenous so that there would be an organic reason for the change in her facial features, which might certainly be the demonic possession or self-immolation. Freakin later explained, Blair wore green contact lenses meant to give her eyes a, a, a bestial appearance. The latex stomach was built for the scene where the words help me appear on her body. The letters were scratched in and then heated to make them disappear. There was a reverse. This was reversed in post-production, so the letters seemed to appear. Father Marin's arrival, iconic scene. It was Max von Tito's first day on set. The, the scene where he steps out of the cab and he's in front of the McNeil residence, silhouetted in a misty street lamp glowing and stares up at the beam light from the bedroom window. It's one of the most famous scenes in the movie and of all time. For, especially for film posters and home media video releases take note Warner Brothers I'm still fucking pissed you're not using this shot for your 4k cover art you're using a stupid ass fucking look of the, the, the demonic look on Reagan's face shame on you guys for not using this for your fucking 4k copy this should be a beautiful fucking cover box it ain't anyway now that I got that rant out of the way it was inspired by Rene Magritte's 1954 painting Empire of Light Freakin wanted to evoke visually the language Blatty used in the novel for the scene, likening Marin to a melancholy traveler frozen in time, standing next to a streetlight in the fog where he gets out of the cab. He gave the crew a full day to light the scene, using mainly arc lights and tripod-mounted troopers, and boosting the brightness of the existing street lamps. Cinematographer Owen Roisman said that this was the most difficult of the, all the film's nighttime exterior shots. In order to get the beam of light the way Freakin wanted it, the crew had to take the window frame out of the, fa the facade they had, to, they had attached to the house for filming, put it behind the window, and then put the spotlight in between the window and the frame. As they were shooting, Roisman said, the wind picked up, making it hard to hold the fog. By working quickly, he and the camera crew were able to get the shot with Freakin finding the first take satisfactory. Sounds like a lot, but in return... You kind of got the most iconic thing in fucking all of, you know, not not just horror, but, like, film, you know? This shot is famous. Yeah, oh, yeah. You don't get much more famous than the shot of him looking up on the silhouette form. It's just, yeah. Anyway, 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people think the Exorcist theme is playing right here, but it's it really not. isn't. No. When you're watching the movie, it's silent. Yeah, exactly. So we get the exorcism. It's the power. Holy water. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ compels me. The power of Christ compels you. 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 He brought you low by his bloodstained cross. Do not despise my command because you know me to be a sinner. It's God himself who commands you. The majestic Christ who commands you. God the Father commands you. God the Son commands you. God the Holy Spirit commands you. The mystery of the cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. Everything in this scene is about destruction, chaos, and angrily sexual. It's a special effects and makeup extravaganza that's so on point after 50 years. The shot of her reaching for the large Pazuzu statue looks incredible and should be celebrated for 50 more years and beyond. The scenes themselves, love how they were shot. They were challenging. They were the most challenging to film, but... You know, th- here's here's the story. Friedkin wanted the bedroom set to be cold enough to see the actor's breath as described in the novel. So he took $50,000 from the budget, which was 809000 and he built a refrigerating system to cool the set. Since the set lighting warmed the air, it remained cold enough to film for only three minutes at a time. Due to frequent breakdowns, only five shots could be finished each day. The complete scene filmed in script order took a month to complete. It was easier to film some of the other supernatural manifestations, such as the bed rocking and the curtains blowing, since the walls and ceiling of the sets were capable of being moved to accommodate a camera. After the scene where the ceiling cracks, it was replaced with one attached to the walls, requiring a hole to be cut in it for the rig to go through when Reagan levitates. The most challenging shot in the sequence, the 80-pound Blair wore a bodysuit under her nightgown with attached hooks for monofilament wires. Freaking did not want any of the scenes in the movie to have any kind of spooky lights that you typically saw in horror films, so all the light in the bedroom comes from a visible source. The room's main... The room's color scheme also suggested black and white film with gray walls, Reagan's bedding a neutral beige, and the priest in black. 
White, according to Boisman, would have been too dominant. In toning everything down like this, the only real color in the room became the skin tones, he said. To me, it's like a real blue template that he's using in this. Um, I think it looks great. I can see how he gets the black and white from it, but to me, it's, it's like a blue overall tone. Like, he selected, like, a blue color template to, to film this with, this sequence. Because everything changes. The way this movie is shot and filmed, I'm not talking about aspects and whatnot. I'm talking about, like, color templates and whatnot. And the way the actual shot looks. He waits until the exorcism scene here in the third act and, like, just completely does a 180 on everything. Like, he throws in the blue color template. He makes things darker. There's a lot more, like, it's, it's, it's scarier natural lighting like i said like stuff you don't see the other the rest of it because the movie's got like this just normal just daytime brightness you know look to it because a lot of the film is during the day daytime but then when this exorcism happens like i was saying like it just gets it it it, it, it changes and I, I i like it that's what i'm getting at um and then Marin dies and Reagan's blank oops expression before she starts to giggle is perfect. <laughs> I fucking love it. Yeah. Yeah, the reaction is great by Linda Blair here. Yeah, it's really good. It sells it very well. Honestly, I thought up until a few years ago when I finally gave this a proper rewatch, I thought that Marin was the one who went out the window and went down the steps and died. It, it, for That was kind of like a... Mandela effect on myself <laughs> that I had for, for many, many years that that was actually Van Cito that dies that way. No, he just happens to just fucking die off screen leaning over the bed. <laughs> That's it. His, yeah, it's I, so I, anticlimactic. I like it's so anticlimactic. Well, I you know, you get the climax at the end with Karis, but I actually like it because it, you know, it, you let your imagination play with you what happened. Eh, heart attack. That's how I look at it. I mean, that's I. I mean, I more than likely it's probably something like that to, too. But you know, I like exploded. leaving things open. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't need right. hard answers on everything. So Kinderman shows up as Karis beats the demon out of Reagan himself, and then takes a fatal leap of faith during the film's memorable climax. Son of a bitch! Take me! Come into me! God damn you! Take me! Take me!
ending with Father Dyer administering Karis' last rites as he seemingly passes. I say seemingly because I've seen Exorcist 3. Uh, <laughs> and the scene is just fucking so good. I mean, I love the POV window shot. The, the leap, the death, that's great. But then I always forget about Father Dyer coming in, like reading his last rites as he's just blood, you know, dying over the sidewalk to all the, spect- the spectators and stuff. Um, it's a really great shot, dude. It's it's a great scene. Fuck the shot. It's a great scene. I, I, I don't know. Um, it's just things you appreciate as you get older, I guess, because I just never really picked up on this. This this because for one, I thought it was Von Sydow for the longest time. And two, Starry died. That's it. I don't remember any fucking priest coming over and performing last rites over his dying body. I just think there's something to it. I don't know what the word is, but I'm looking for it. But it, it's just, it's impactful. I, I can say that much. But um, anything you wanted to say about it? No, I mean, it's one of those that it doesn't really make a huge impact on me. I mean, it's good. Right. But, uh, you know, thinking in my head, like, I, for the longest time, all I remembered at the ending was... Uh, Father Karras falling out of the window, dying, and then to me the movie almost kind of ended. Yeah, you don't <laughs> you know, really forgot like the whole how it properly ends, right? Yeah, it's not super memorable. I mean, it's fine. Like you know, it, it's the postscript. You know, exactly. It's fine. Like it's nice seeing the happy ending. Uh, you know of um, Reagan you know, the, and her of mother. Chris and Reagan driving off. Yeah, it, it's nice seeing all that, but yeah, it doesn't really stick in my head too much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's, it's exactly that. Reagan has no memory of the incident, but she's got plenty of scars on her face to remember that something happened, I guess. And yeah, like, they're getting ready to leave. Father Dyer says goodbye, and Reagan's moved by the sight of Dyer's, his collar. She gives him a kiss on the cheek. It's a really weird scene, actually. And as the McNeils leave, Father uh, Chris gives Dyer the medallion that was found in Reagan's room. And then we hear... Uh, nothing. It just suddenly cuts the black, the title card, and we hear a weird song that's not Tubular Bells. Where <laughs> it's a variation of Tubular Bells. But yeah, that's um, The Exorcist. That's a discussion of The Exorcist. Alright, before we get into the categories, I want to take five minutes to talk about why Reagan was possessed to begin with. Because I don't feel that gets talked about enough or brought up in conversation. So... Because it just happens. It doesn't really. It's it's kind of like you gotta you gotta put pieces together. Because honestly, it's it's she was just the, the wrong place, wrong time. It was never intended to be her. It was you know this all harkens back to Father Harris and him losing faith himself, and he was intended the entire time. And that was that he was the target. So the way I'm looking at it is Reagan was this little girl who's about to become a woman 12 years old doesn't have much of a father figure you know guy can't even call her on her birthday that's another subject that i meant to bring up is like the the lack of father in her presence he's briefly discussed and that's kind of like i don't know he's he's not brushed he's not talked about enough in my opinion but anyway and, and then her mother is busy being you know an actress being a movie star and so this this vulnerable girl and Pazuzu kind of takes her form to bring Karis into the light. So that 
you know, the true target can be seen, you know what I mean? Because like I said, of all the times this film is brought up, it's, it's, it's always about how scary it is and the impact that it's had for over all these generations of, of moviegoers, but talking about the film itself, it's always scenes brought up or famous quotes, but it's never the why, you know? So I just wanted to bring that up. You know, we're, we're a podcast talking about the film. I'd be remiss to not bring that up. So anyway, we can move on then. All right, let's get into some categories. First off, Trivial Pursuit. It's funny. Little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. So The Exorcist won two of its 10 Academy Award nominations. It was the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture. It won four of seven Golden Globe nominations, including Best Picture for a Drama, Robert Knudsen and Chris Newman won The Exorcist's first Oscar for Best Sound. Thanking Friedkin, the studio, and their crews. Blatty won for Best Adapted Screenplay, accepting the award from Angie Dickinson and Miller, who applauded Blatty vigorously. In his short speech, Blatty posthumously thanked William Bloom, who taught me the rudiments and the craft of screenwriting, and Friedkin. He also paid tribute to his parents, whose love and whose courage have brought me to this moment and to this place. The next morning, Blatty complained about the film snubbing on the front page of The Hollywood Reporter. It was a disgrace that The Exorcist had not won all the awards it was nominated for, as it was head and shoulders the finest film made this year and in many other years. Blatty admitted he might have been ungracious since he had won, but I'd rather be ungracious than to be a hypocrite. He accused veteran director George Cucker of having campaigned against giving the film any awards. In the scene where Reagan projected vomits at Father Karras, the vomit was intended to hit Jason Miller in the chest, but the plastic tubing misfired, and that's why it hit him in the face. His reaction of shock and disgust from wiping away the vomit is genuine, and Miller admitted in interviews that he was angered by this mistake. On the first day of filming the exorcism scene, Linda Blair's delivery of her foul mouth dialogue disturbed the gentlemanly Max Van Seedal so much that he forgot his lines. Due to death threats against Linda Blair from religious zealots who believed the film glorified Satan, Warner Brothers hired bodyguards to protect her for six months after the film's release. The original teaser trailer, which consisted of nothing but images of a white-faced demon quickly flashing in and out of darkness, was banned in many theaters as it was deemed too frightening. And adjusted for inflation, this would be the highest-grossing R-rated film of all time. Author William Peter Blatty once won 10 grand on the Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life. When Groucho asked what he planned to do with the money, he said he planned to take some time off to work on a novel. Groucho was mentioned in the film by Lieutenant Kinderman in jest as playing Othello. Linda Blair received her Best Supporting Actress nomination before it was widely known that previous Supporting Actress winner Mercedes McCambridge had actually provided the voice of the demon by Academy of Rules. Once Blair was given the nomination, it could not be withdrawn, but the controversy about Blair being given credit for another actress's work ruined her chances of winning the award. Ellen Bernstein objected to the original exchange between her character and Father Dyer at the end, where she claims she now believes in the devil but not God. During the 1984 reunion of the cast of The Exorcist on Good Money in America, Ellen Bernstein told a story of when she was in Tucson, Arizona, filming Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and The Exorcist was opening in that city while she was there, so she went to see it. She stated that the scene where Reagan has her audiogram, the scene where Reagan gets an autoreal catheter inserted into her neck, was the part that had most people fainting. 
After that scene, she saw a woman wobbling up the aisle, so Miss Bernstein followed her. When the woman finally fainted, Miss Bernstein was at her aid, loosening her collar and talking to her. Then the woman began to come to, and Miss Bernstein realized that if this woman opened her eyes and saw her, this might have caused her to panic. Miss Bernstein's exact words were that she might think that she was in the twilight zone or something, so Miss Bernstein asked assistance from another person to help the woman recover. Ellen Bernstein wore a bracelet in the film with a horseshoe on it because she had the idea that she wanted her character Chris McNeil to be poorly armed to fight the devil. On the last day of filming, she gave the bracelet to Linda Blair. Several years later, they crossed paths on an airline flight to Los Angeles, and Linda was wearing the bracelet that she had given her. In 2003's A Decade Under the Influence, William Friedkin talks about the original poster that the studio created for the film. It was a drawing of Reagan's hand holding the bloody crucifix that she masturbates with. The original tagline was, God help this girl. Friedkin rejected the poster, stating that the word God should not be used in a movie tagline. To entertain and distract Linda Blair during the long makeup process she had to sit through, the crew set up a television near her makeup chair where she would often watch the Beverly Hillbillies, I Love Lucy, and The Flying Nun. Makeup artist Dick Smith would later recall in an interview, Oh, how I learned to hate The Flying Nun. Pantera's 1992 album, A Vulgar Display of Power, was named after the demon's reply when Father Karras asked him, Why can't you make the restraints disappear? To which the demon replies, That's much too vulgar a display of power. In 1985, when Joel Schumacher was filming St. Elmo's Fire in Georgetown and attempted to get permission from the Jesuit priest facility at the school to film there, he was rejected. Schumacher complained to the facility, You let Bill Freakin film The Exorcist here in 1973, and one of your characters in that movie said, Your mother sucks cocks in hell. One of the Jesuit priests answered, Yes, but the devil didn't win in their movie. <laughs> the entire exorcism scene from start to finish lasts nine minutes entirely. Alright, let's take a walk to the critics corner to see what they all had to say about the film. <laughs> Exorcist has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 84% based on 90 reviews, with a critical consensus that says The Exorcist rides its supernatural-themed magical effect, with remarkable special effects and an eerie atmosphere resulting in one of the scariest films of all time. It's got a meta score of 81 out of 100 based on 21 reviews. Ebes gave the film four stars, praising the actors, particularly Bernstein and the special effects, but concluded, I am not sure exactly what reasons people will have for seeing this movie. Surely enjoyment won't be one. Are people so numb they need movies of this intensity in order to feel anything at all? Richard Combs from Sight and Sound said, The film continually struggles to suggest the atmosphere that it promises but fails to provide in substance. Gene Siskel, Eve's partner, gave it four stars and said, I loved it. Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly gave it an A-, said some movies aren't just movies. They're closer to voodoo. They channel currents larger and more powerful than themselves. Jay Cox from Time Magazine said, Freakin' and Blatty seem to care nothing for their characters as people, only as victims' props to be abused, hurled around the room, beaten, and in one case, brutally murdered. James Bardinelli from Real Views gave it 3 out of 4. 
said there is nothing dated about the exorcist which remains an effective excursion into demonic possession more than a quarter of a century after it was first unveiled to the public. One of the best things that could have happened is the Pope denounces it, Friedkin said. The crucifix scene and others involved material sacrilegious to Catholics, officially the church whose influence over film content had declined following the demise of the Hayes office and the associated production code a few years earlier, had bemoaned Warner's choice of release date. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops' Office for Film and Broadcast Catholic Film Newsletter rated the film A. Four suitable for adults only with reservations and gave it a generally negative review that faulted the film for, suge- for suggestive for suggesting exorcisms were common and possibly encouraging of belief and possibly encouraging belief in the occult and satism. Director Martin Scorsese put The Exorcist on his list of 11 scariest horror movies. Other filmmakers, including Kubrick, Robert Eggers. Alex Proyas and David Fincher have cited The Exorcist as a favorite. In 2008, it was named one of Empire's 500 greatest movies ever made. The Times put it on a similar list of a thousand films. John Carpenter listed The Exorcist as one of his top eight scariest horror classics and listed the film as an influence in his 1980 supernatural horror movie, The Fog. Personal favorite of yours truly. Let's talk about what we thought in the form of pros and cons. Robin? Get me my legal pad. It's pros and cons time. I <laughs> suppose right, so obviously kicking that off. I think the cinematography and the atmosphere is stunning and is a massive difference maker in this being one of the greatest horror films of all time as opposed to being in a little religious theme bust, you know. Uh, there's a lot of throwaway religious horror films. This is not one of them. Um I don't think Ellen Burson's performance, and we talked about this before in the episode, I don't think it gets enough praise. In horror, we're always talking about the final girls and villains themselves, but performances like this often take a seat in the back whenever we get into these conversations about, you know, that strike up about horror. Um, Freakin's reputation as a director who pushes the limit in order to get the shots he needs is a very important pro to bring up because without his commanding in this, without him commanding commanding this project i don't see this being anywhere near the film that it is today i really do believe freaking's presence and his no limit his 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 just his is i'm i'm failing to come up with a word to describe <laughs> freaking at this very moment but he's a very commanding person you know that that's not the word i wanted to use but it's the word they to think of at this moment and finally it's true horror that stands the test of time at the end of the day that's what this movie is it's 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 a horror film that's brought up all the time and for good reason it, it's it's not overrated it, it 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 stands the test of time it really does so those are my four key pros of this movie i'm sure there's more but I'm going to keep it limited for the sake of conversation. How about you, Corey? Where are your pros? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot. There's not a lot to dislike in this movie. So uh, my first pro is the performances. I, I you know, I, I think that's really what helps ground everything. I think that's what makes it scary. I mean, uh, you know, it just feels like these are real people and this is really happening. It can happen to you. And that's why it's yeah. uh, so frightening. Uh, you know, it, there's certain horror movies that it's just so fantastical and just disconnected from reality. It's not really scary because you can't put yourself in that situation, but 
uh, the way everybody acts. And, you know, obviously we'll talk about MVP later, but uh, their performances from top to bottom are fantastic in this. So everybody's great. Everybody and, gets a shout out. And to add to that, the way he casted a bunch of no names at the time, you know, no one knew who Max von Sydow was. No one knew, who, you know, Jason Miller or Alan Bernstein or, of course, Linda Blair. No one knew her at all. But he's just unknown names back in 72 73 when this film was being made and came out it, it there's something about that you know these people not knowing them and their performances and it's a lot different seeing no name a no name person you know do this other than like a George Clooney or Julia Roberts type actress someone who's known and you expect it so yeah, anyway, um, my next pro, um, I, I just love the special effects in this movie. I mean, they still hold oh, up yeah. uh, to this day, from the makeup to the practical things. Uh, you know, I know some of it's more complicated, like making a, you know, like a full body double of uh, Linda Blair. Uh, and some of it's easier, like the bed shaking and stuff like that. But it, it's all mm-hmm. very effective. You know, some movies look dated, um, you know, and obviously you could tell the time period from this movie, but... Uh, to me, classics are timeless, and I think this uh, movie falls into that category. I, you know, it, it still really holds up today, so I, I obviously got to give out the special effects uh, nod. Um, my next pro is the directing. I mean, freaking, you know, he's a great director. I mean, he, I, you mm-hmm. know, the word I would use to describe him is fearless. Like, he doesn't care, you know, who it's going to offend. He doesn't give a shit about any of that. He just, you know, he, he knows what kind of message and what he wants to put across in the movie. He knows what's going to work and mm-hmm. he doesn't give a damn. He just <laughs> goes ahead with it. And you know, it, any, any kind of backlash or any kind of issue, uh, be damned pretty much. I mean, it's just, you know, he's, he's going to put it in his movie. If he thinks it's going to work or get across a certain, um, feeling or a certain point. So, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. And then obviously, uh, my last pro how can you not talk about the music? I mean, the Exorcist theme, one of the all-time themes. I mean, it's one I can hear it just not even watching the movie, just hear it on its own, mm-hmm. and it can give me goosebumps. Like that's, that's just how well done it is. I mean, uh, I could be wrong. Yeah, I think you only hear it once in the actual movie. I, I think it's when Chris is walking home. You know, unless I'm wrong, I think that's the only time you actually hear that's it. That's it in the film. It's the only scene. So, that's it. Yeah, I, I mean that's it. So it's just, but it, it it's just got such stay power. It's just it's just one of those that I can listen to on its own. I don't even need to um, be watching the movie or anything like that. I mean, it's just such a iconic piece of music. I mean, even people that aren't horror fans, you play that song, everybody knows The Exorcist. You know, <laughs> you play that part of the score. So, uh, you know, and I'll give a nod too. Like this might sound strange. Like I like the lack of music and sound and a lot of like the exorcist so scenes. I. I think that just gives it grounded realism mm-hmm. so I, you know i think the sound department did a very good job and just knowing where to have things and where not to have things to make it more grounded um but yeah just a lot to love about the movie but um those are my pros yeah not every scene needs to have like a big you know commanding score to to, to, to be in the background it's 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 I'm with you up on that 100% with the new the new music thing. Uh, cons, I left mine blank because I don't have any cons. I have nothing to nitpick about this movie. Um, it's the closest thing to a perfect film a horror movie is going to get. I, I I truly believe that. Um, I, I think Freakin' does a, a just 
outstanding job with this movie and 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 Blatty for his writing credentials, everything from his novel to the to the, the screenplay of this film. Um, not not that Freed can get the damn when because since he has final say over everything, whatever he wants, he's gonna fucking get. But I I, I honestly don't really have any qualms to at least one's big enough to bring up for this conversation for this topic here um you might feel differently that's fine but me personally i let the blank so yeah i mean for a con for me if you want to call it a con it would just be i would like a little bit more in certain scenes like maybe a little bit more of uh father Marin. You know, because you, you see him set up at the beginning and then you don't see him again for a while, which I understand yeah. that, you know, that's perfectly fine. But maybe just a little bit more time with Father Marin, uh, just, you know, just a few extra scenes added in to flesh things out a little bit more. You know, I don't necessarily need a ton of like mythology or backstory. I actually think that's where a lot of horror movies and horror sequels go wrong. It's explaining too much. You know, so yeah. I don't need that necessarily. I would just like to see a little bit more of the characters. Like that would be my if you want to call it a con. I mean, I mean, to me, the movie is pretty much perfect. But if I have to pick anything, I would say maybe just add an extra 10 minutes, a few extra scenes. That would be about it for me. Right, well, speaking of extra scenes, let's get into our mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Because I'm going to give Reagan slightly more on-screen time under the guise of the devil and include some more details that pertain to Reagan's father. Because um, it's it's the closest thing to a con. I actually started to write that in, in my con, but then I'm like, nah, I'm not even going to. Because I knew I was going to bring it up here in my mulligan moment. Um, there's the whole father thing with Reagan. Um, I think they said he's overseas or something it's, it's like a throwaway line um but that's it uh as far as that go- as far as that goes um but yeah so Re- reagan we get the nine minute you know exorcist scene at the end but other than that though we get a couple scenes i don't know maybe i looked a little bit more uh as the, the demonic reagan um and it's, a, it's only a minor qualm. It's it's not even, you know, that big of a deal. Uh, but that's yeah, that's what I wrote down. I'm not looking at it, though. Give her more time, a little bit, under the guise. And um, to give us something more. A little bit more on the whole father aspect. So, um, again, you might feel differently. What's your mulligan moment? So, to me, the whole Lieutenant Kinderman mm. character and the whole mystery, you could take that out of the film. Honestly, I really yeah. don't think it would really take away too much. I mean, Lee J. Cobb is fine. Like, I actually like him quite a bit uh, in the movie, but it just really doesn't go anywhere. I don't, I don't quite understand. I don't know where Freakin' was going. I understand all the other decisions in the movie. I don't know where Freakin' was going with uh, the whole investigation and everything like that. And, you know, Burke die. I Because uh, he finds I, the headless Pazuzu statue. Which is funny because Marin in the beginning just finds the Bazuzu head. Yeah. But nothing, but we don't know anything else other than he sees it, he takes it, never gets brought up again. <laughs> yeah. I, it, to me, it's just, it's a wasted scene. Or, you know, like when he's talking with Chris, that's all fine. But to me, that, 
easily could be cut and the movie really wouldn't be any worse for it. So that would be mine, the whole investigation and Kinderman character in general. All right. Finger looking good. It's finger licking good. Uh, the third act. It's, it's, it's what the bulk of the film is building up towards and ultimately pays off in spades. I, I love the exorcism scene. I, everything from when Marin arrives to um, Kara's throwing himself out the window. It's it's just mwah, it's fucking wonderful. It's what horror filmmaking is all about. <laughs> so, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I don't see how you could really pick anything right, else other right. than the third act. You know, the whole movie's building to it. I mean, everything's great. You know, like I, I view everything setting up as kind of like the trimmings and the sides, and that's all really good. You know, you got to have sides. You know, sides are expensive. You got to have the sides. But, uh, you know, you're here for the main course and entree of the exorcism, and it delivers. You know, it it might not be anything uh, too spectacular by today's standards, you know, with all the crazy flying shit and all the special effects and all the physical you know, contortionist they bring in nowadays for exorcism movies. It doesn't have all that, but it doesn't need to. It 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 does it very well. It's effective. I mean, you know, who doesn't remember, uh, you know, the Linda Blair's head spinning around? Everybody knows that. Or the green pea soup. Just simple tricks that are uh, very effective, you know, when she throws up on people. It's just uh, extremely memorable and a great payoff. And I, I, I mean, it's just, yeah. It's definitely... Definitely classic A plus stuff. I mean, it's it, that's what you're there for. That's the main treat. So of course that's got to be my uh, finger looking good. Well, speaking of picking sides, I'm really curious to see what side you picked for MVP. So let's get into our movie MVPs. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is. And because curiosity killed the cat, I'm willing to let you go first because I'm really curious to hear who you picked as your MVP out of the three core characters. Yeah, I mean it was tough uh, for me because I really, it was tough. I really, I really enjoyed Jason Miller as Father Karras. Uh, you know, I I really do like his whole character with the guilt and. You know, I like that he's a skeptic as well. Uh, you know, it's just I like the fact that he's like, you don't want an exorcism. You don't need an exorcism. I, I'll help her with mental health. I like the fact that, you know, the way Jason Miller plays uh, Father Karras, I think he's great. And he's right underneath. But I got to give it up to Ellen Burstyn as Chris. I mean, to me, she's really what holds this movie together and what keeps it going. I mean, I feel for her every second, uh, you know, seeing her reactions when she's talking about Reagan and what's going on and just the way she like basically scoffs and it, it gets so upset with the doctors and all the medical field because they're just offering bullshit answers. And, uh, you know, I I really, it, the performance is fantastic. I mean, I, I, I think it's Academy Award worthy. For sure. So, I mean, she's definitely my MVP. I, you know, I can't argue with any of the main three um, in this movie. I, you know, if anybody picked any of them, I couldn't argue. But for me, yeah, I mean, it, it's far and away the character of Chris and Ellen Burstyn. I mean, she's fantastic in this. So I got to give it up to her. Yeah, ditto. Burstyn, my MVP as well. Um, for everything I just said, everything you just said, um, everything I just said earlier in the episode about how her performance is just kind of overlooked by a lot of other performances um, 
in in horror in general and i just don't i and, and this movie you know, gets brought up it's always linda blair but it's never ellen bernstein and i feel that you know she deserves more and she is the mvp of this movie and a lot of this movie falls on her on her shoulders as you know the the supportive concerned loving mother who's just getting thrown through the ringer of everything and can't wait to see her come back this year people have their mixed opinions on the movie but you know i am i'm a fan of green and and um oh my god mcbride's halloween trilogy so i am going into this exorcist series uh you know with uh good intentions so looking forward to seeing her come back um and yeah she's my mvp of this movie hands down all right let's get on to well this is it final effect rating how would you rate this one miles double feature pairing yeah we made a great pair all right so i'm gonna give this film five stars it's fascinating to me how this movie went from being one of my least favorites 25 years ago to one of the greatest films in horror cinema everything from dick smith's breathtaking makeup work to the powerhouse performances of burst and miller and blair it holds up to a t perfectly the scares are on point the effects are some of the most convincing in the industry every single positive thing that's been said about the exorcist since 1973 goes double for me that's how I'm going to end that. And my double feature pairing, I'm going to pair this up with Carrie from a few years later, 76. There, now, here's a double feature that deals with both the stages of young adulthood. You're going through all the rows of being a preteen like Reagan. You put on Carrie to watch all hell break loose while going through puberty and becoming her own. So for all you feminists out there, this one's for you. The Exorcist and Carrie is my double feature pairing. Five stars fucking as far as horror goes it's perfection Corey, how about you man yeah i mean it's a classic it's an all-timer so I, of course i gotta give it five stars <laughs> you know i i i couldn't see myself giving it any lower rating do i have minor qualms here or there sure very uh, yeah but it's a classic for a reason uh like i mentioned before i just think the way it's almost like a procedural type movie at the beginning and grounded in so much reality that when you bring in all the crazy shit at the end <laughs> uh, you know it just feels natural just feels yeah. right uh the performances uh you know i i just think everything's um wonderfully crafted and excellently done so yeah of course i have to give it um a perfect rating i you know if you haven't seen it go out and see it don't let it don't be turned off that it's an older movie i know some younger listeners or some younger people get that, get that mentality out of your head that. but uh you know classics are timeless there's a reason we're still talking about it uh you know 50 years later um and that's why because it's great um so as far as like a double pairing uh for me uh this could just be because of the 70s uh aesthetic of the film but the omen uh came to my mind recently Ooh, so i would rec yeah i have the screen factory set for that one and i gave uh the first couple a rewatch uh fairly recently so the omen i i me, prefer damien bit, yeah i prefer yeah, damien I, yeah i do too but um you know, I think it's a little bit overlooked. You know, I, I know it was a little bit of a big deal in 76, but, you know, you have like the... And it's not really a possession movie uh, per se, but 
uh you know it, it's got like the creepy kid and it, it's just expertly done so it, it pairs well with the time period so if you're watching the exorcist give the omen a try and give some of the sequels a try because they're actually pretty good yeah, not bad well, sadly, this is the part where we wrap things up on this film effect treatment of William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, a film that surely gets the full film effect seal of approval, one down, many more to follow. If this was your first time here on the show, then let us know what you thought by leaving us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Facebook, leave us an email, filmeffectpod at gmail.com, or directly at the website, thefilmeffectpodcast.com. Social media-wise, you can find us on Twitter or X at Film Effect Pod and the Film Effect Podcast everywhere else. Coming up on Season of the Horathon, special guest Carlo from his podcast, The Movie Loot, makes his return to the show as the two of us go ahead and give Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho the pathogen film effect treatment. Before we bounce, though, I want to thank Corey for helping me kick off the third annual Horathon event. This is only the beginning, so man, thanks, Corey. It's truly is the best time of the year and i wouldn't have it any other way having you help me kick it off though yeah yeah i was happy to be on i mean i you know i've been on the last couple kickoffs so why not (laughs) fucking love this time of the year it's my favorite time of the year if you thought this episode was a blast we have plenty plenty more to come so until next time i'm ed and i'm still Corey, and this has been another edition of the film effect podcast go ahead send us home sean all right gang we're gonna see you all again next time when those theater lights go dim, the opening credits begin to roll. You know what she did? Your canting daughter?